Hello, welcome to episode 209 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 2nd of October, 2017. My name is Chris Thurston, and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior. Hello. And Tom Francis. Hello. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> so formal. Yeah, it was very it's formal. It's like a schoolroom or something. Yeah. <laughs> Here. Tonight, we're going to talk about plunk bag problems. Are we? Yes. Briefly? <laughs> yes, briefly. Not that's the only thing we're going to talk about. But, uh, I didn't know how to segue out of formal intro into news, um, so I just decided to do it weirdly. It's a three-hour plunk bat server trouble special. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sorry. Yes, this was going to be a, a lock-in, but you were locked in with three hours of hot, hot latency chat. No, uh, everyone's favorite game, uh, the most popular game in, in, in the world, uh, I think. It's, uh, that's probably, probably not, right. it's not true, probably. Um, uh, that was probably an MMO in China, isn't it? That's, yeah. Has more players. Uh, player on the Battlegrounds has had a bit of a week of week of controversy. Yeah, it's um, it's had 10,000 negative reviews in the last day, I think. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Which is like, that would be an astronomical number of reviews to have in total over your lifetime after 10 years. <laughs> Did they kill a child? Um, no, um, but they... Players in China are seeing in-game ads. Oh, my um, God. And they're seeing in-game ads for uh, VPN services that let you connect to non-Chinese punk bat servers. Um, And uh, so they're doubly annoyed about this because, A, it's in-game advertising for a thing they paid for, and, B, the reason that's even a service that people offer is that the Chinese services are really slow and or there's something to do with the Chinese servers that makes performance poor. And um, uh, so they're... They feel like they paid for a game, and now they're also being uh, advertised on a way to make that game now run well, see, yeah. or you know, uh, have less lag. Now, there's a really weird situation because when I was out in China recently, something I was talking to people about was that latency and connecting to latency and connecting to servers outside China is is an issue that can, um, you know, curtail the success of an online game in mm. China, specifically because you know the government controls that traffic and and you require a partner with a Chinese distributor in order to have your servers in China and so on. Um, it feels, it seems really dodgy to have like your servers in China with a Chinese partner and then the service advertising the game that gets you around that, presumably. Like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if this is a, a thing where the uh, Blue Hole um, are intentionally advertising that particular service to players because they know it will sell or if it's just a thing where there's an ad slot and the th- people who happen to right. have bought the ad space is is they, a company who very sensibly think their market might be <laughs> punk bat players mm. since they sell a service for that. Didn't they separate the game out into a different company? Recently? Yeah. Um, I think it's just like a subsidiary though, right? It's, oh, right, it's, so it didn't it's go just an organisational thing. Yeah, I think mm. so. Yeah, unless, it, unless they are trying to get around some regulation, yeah. finding a a bloop hole. <laughs> this is definitely one of the things we don't know enough about. To talk no. About. Uh, the other issue that people have been crossed about is uh, latency. Mm. The game has suffered quite a lot lately. It's kind of a miracle it didn't suffer sooner, given how yeah. explosively successful it was. Yeah. Um, people not being able to connect at all, that kind of thing. I, I, I don't know enough about this, because again, we don't know enough about any of this. <laughs> um, but I wonder if to what extent it's like when a game sells that much and and gets that big um what would be you know an issue affecting a handful of people becomes naturally an issue affecting loads of people i was interested actually that i looked into this just because um the only reason i know anything about this topic is because i happened to have read pc gamers article just before i came out (laughs) um and 
I saw the headline that they had 10,000 negative reviews in this space of time. Um, and I clicked through to find out um, what does that make its overall score? Like, is t- 10,000 is an incredible amount for a normal game. Is it like a, a drop in the ocean for Plunk Bat? And in particular, I was, I was interested in on Steam. It separates out recent reviews and overall reviews. Mm. And I was like, well, recent reviews are going to be mixed as fuck. <laughs> um, uh, but is the, has that brought the overall thing down into, into mixed territory? And the answer is, yes, the overall reviews are mixed. But numerically, no, it can't be just the 10,000 that it just got. It must have already been fairly low. Um, or it can't have been like overwhelmingly positive or anything. Um, because it's got like a... Uh, something like 150,000 reviews or something. So 10,000 negatives is bad, but it, mm. it could put it down in one bracket, but it's not going to go from like super positive to mixed in that mm. space of time. Mm. So I think it, and I, it, I actually used Steam's new histogram feature, <laughs> which um, was uh, roundly mocked in the press, but it was quite useful in this case to see that, oh, there's a massive load of negative reviews today. And, um, but also historically, there's sort of like, it looked about sort of 20% negative reviews. Um, you know, like 20% negative, 80% positive. Um, mm. uh, and then worse on some days for some reason. Um, but yeah, that was uh, kind of interesting. How do you feel this? Because, I mean, you know, the Steam histogram feature, which is just to clarify, is sort of the ability to see um, review distribution over time. Yeah, um, a, uh, user reviews. Um, yeah. And it's for spotting review bombing. It was Valve's answer to the review bombing problem. Um, not their final answer. <laughs> um, just a, a the, the step that they chose to take at the, t- take at the time. Um, so that when review bombing happens, you can at least see, oh, this is a review bomb. This is this is not a long-standing problem with the game. This has like, happened recently. And then you, uh, you can click a button either to ignore those reviews uh, or only look at those reviews because you want to read them and find out what the issue is. But if the issue is something that only affects Chinese players, you're going to read a lot of Chinese reviews. <laughs> if you don't speak mm. Chinese, you might infer, this is something um, uh, I should say, uh, Tom Hatfield pointed this out on Twitter, um, that you know, if all the, all the negative reviews are getting are in Chinese, then that uh, makes it tricky to figure out what the problem is. Um, you might infer that it's something to do with the Chinese. <laughs> so <laughs> something that mainly affects uh, uh, Chinese players. Um, but of course that, it would get a lot stickier if it was like, if there was something that affected all of Europe, um, there would be loads of reviews in all kinds of languages uh, and it might be difficult to find any English ones if you only spoke English. Um, mm. And it would, you couldn't, it's not safe to assume, oh, the negative reviews are in a foreign language, therefore this issue doesn't affect me. Yeah, it's interesting, like, because I think, I, I think the system, as a first step, fine, but like, it doesn't, I, 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 I know we had a discussion about this like a couple of months ago on the pod, but like, I don't know if I am comfortable with review bombing being a thing that's possible in Steam because I, I, I sort of half understand it as a way f- where consumers feel they have no other way of communicating with the developer. It's a way to kind of forcibly make a noise. But given that it can, it can be basically used for any reason you want to um, basically bully a developer, essentially. Like that's, that, that is the... That is the the reflex that it enables, regardless. Mm. And I wonder if the solution to something like this is to have reviews be something that players are invited to do. Like I was thinking about this the other day, relative relevant to this issue, because um, you know when you get like an app on your phone, it's constantly popping up saying you to rate. It. And there's a reason it does that because it's looking for iTunes ratings or whatever app store ratings that will help it rank. But 
the notion of like Steam every now and then saying like we'll give you a little voucher if you go through a little list of games and review two of them and you have that a time limited slot in which to do that and that's when you get to leave a user review and if you don't do it during that time you have to wait for the next time you're invited I think would solve this problem I'm kind of putting that out there as a sort of what think, are the obvious problems with that? Um, so one is that when you give incentives for these things, people tend to phone it in to an extreme extent. Mm. So like they yeah, can just type in any old garbage to get the reward. Like we saw this with um, when Valve did the like treasure hunt type thing where you had to get a certain number of... To get your community badge, you've got to do a certain number of activities on Steam. And one of them is comment on someone's profile. And so mm. everyone's profile has this one garbage comment from someone who's saying, I have to do this to get a badge. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other thing is like people who are motivated enough to comment like whatever we think of their complaint, that complaint's legitimate enough to them to go to the time yeah, of expressing that. it's tricky because the distinction you want to have is, you know, I, as, a, as someone browsing Steam, um, uh, when this happened is not really the important information. It's, uh, is this a problem with the game or are you angry at the developer for something outside the game? And um, mm. Valve touched on this in their, their post about this. They, they sort of see that as, as a problem um, because the, uh, it kicked off around the time um, of the... Uh, Campo Santo uh, PewDiePie thing uh, where Campo Santo were pissed off at PewDiePie for something he said and therefore issued a DMCA takedown for their, his video of their game and um, uh, that caused PewDiePie's audience to be pissed off at Campo Santo and then to review bomb Firewatch um, and so the review bombing had nothing to do with the quality of the game like people I read some of those reviews and they were talking about the quality of the game because mm. but it was like people who've come here now to suddenly announce they don't like the game um, mm. because of something else that's happening um, and so that to me uh, as uh, a user uh, that's completely different to the Plunkbat thing where if they'd added like in-game ads to uh, to the game in my region uh, I would want to know about that and if, it, if that's mm. if it's causing a huge negative effect um, it probably does represent something about how I'll feel about the game um, but you can't split them. Like, if you, you know, the naive solution would be like, oh, just have it when you write reviews. Ask them, are you talking about the game itself or something? <laughs> yeah. And are of you... course, everyone would just say the game, no matter yeah, what. Yeah, and are you writing this because you individually came up, felt that it was important <laughs> personally to write this? Or are you writing this because, you know, people on Reddit thought that it would be good if we all did this? Like, yeah. you know. is, there, is there a mandatory, like, time of played? that you have to acquire before posting a review on steam uh no but it does tell you it does show you that uh sorry it does show that on your profile i think uh i you have to own the game <laughs> um mm. yeah i actually don't know i answered that without actually knowing the truth <laughs> just jump right in there it, if everyone had to like spend an hour in the game before they're allowed to post anything about it also yeah the problem with that is then if the reason that they want to complain about it is because it didn't work at all. Yeah. <laughs> you can say that that's a review. legit. Well, maybe have suppose, it yeah, have it so that if you can't leave a review until the refund window is expired, because if you hit a big problem and you refund it, then you you as a, you know your commercial risk has been assuaged. Yeah, and then maybe that maybe have some kind of system where you, you can see how many people have chosen to refund a game. And, you know, maybe with some sort of exit comments and people who've mass refunded a game saying it doesn't work at all, that kind of thing, within the first hour, it wouldn't even boot, that kind of thing. And that's separate to reviews, which are only for people who have stuck with the game past the, you know, um, past the point where you can't seek a refund anymore. Yeah, that's not a bad solution. Um, yeah, by itself, restricting reviews to 
the refund after the refund window would obviously leave a loophole for scammers who are creating bullshit games that look appealing uh, because there'd be this lag before the, the negative reviews ever came up. But yeah, like you say, if you could show refund statistics as well, um, that would help. Um, I can't remember what the other thing I was going to say about this was. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. Just, it's- oh, yeah. Uh, the thing I thought was uh, when I was reading Val's post on this, they, you know, they're explaining their, their histogram solution and um, uh, it has the option to exclude those reviews. I can't help thinking that, like, it would be worth, if you can detect it reliably, and it seems like you can, like when there's a spike of this magnitude, um, I can't help thinking it would be good to uh, just exclude those from the overall percentage and still flag it up, say, oh, a high volume of negative reviews, click here for more information or whatever, but the overall percentage would not change. And then if it goes back afterwards, because they were saying like in general over time, these things, if it is just a controversy uh, rather than an actual problem with the game, then the review score kind of stabilizes. But it's like eventually, and if it's a if it's a big dip, it could take a long time to get out of. Um, uh, it might be quick to get out of the mixed category, but it would be a long time before you're back at where you were. You know, any kind of law of averages thing um, takes a very long time for um, it to balance out because you don't necessarily get a counteracting positive effect yeah uh, you might just get the same ratio you're getting if you're a 70 percent positive before and then you get like ten thousand negative reviews suddenly could take a long time for that 70 percent to mm. add up to you getting back to 70 percent it's going to be like 50 percent for a long time it's going to be 60 percent for a long time and so i can't help thinking that you should like if it is just a blip then it should exclude it from the long-term uh, review percentage um but obviously, if it stays negative for a long time, then it probably is something mm. to do with the game. Because it's it's hard to imagine sort of people endlessly review bombing over an out-of-game controversy. It's more likely to be real players if it, if it's a lasting problem. Yeah. It'd be, yeah, maybe the solution there is like when when a high, extremely high volume or a high, a, a dramatic shift in the number of negative reviews occurs, it just delays calculating the average for a week, basically. And then, mm. you know, sort of... So the average doesn't get updated for a while. And as you say, there's a little flag that says yeah. something's going on, but Steambot can't decide whether it's legitimate consumer complaints or a controversy. It's just, it's such a weird thing to have to design against. But yeah. Also with your review refunds idea where sort of um, uh, ability to review is delayed until you're eligible for a refund, but refund information is also public. Um, you could let them review it then and there but you just don't count that towards the percentage until that window's up. Because mm. they do that for um, off-Steam purchases. If you get uh, if you get the game via like a, a Steam key from elsewhere, um, you can review it, and people can read your review. It'll be there on the page, but it won't be factored into the overall percentage because they... I can't remember what the rationale for that actually was, but um, uh, I think people were just giving away keys in exchange for positive reviews mm. to game the system. Do you think this is a worry for Plunk Bag? This sort of thing, I doubt it. It's, it's success is so Titanic at this point that you know if it never yeah. sold another and copy. God knows you can't sink a Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps the wrong metaphor there. <laughs> um, yeah, the other announcement was that it's now not being. It's got a new dev studio assigned to it. I mean, out of the existing developers, but they are now PUBG team. Public <laughs> team. Public team. Um, yeah, it's it, it. It was always like it was a company sort of hiring 
the plunk back guy, right? That, that made this. Mm. I mean, he wasn't the plunk back guy at the time, but a player he unknown. Just, he was just a, a plunk. He was. He was. If you want, if you will, an unknown player. <laughs> um, mm. And uh, it sounded like that they sort of hired him and gave him a team and said, "Hey, do that as a game." Um, and that's a different thing to him founding a studio of his own and mm. making that game. And so this possibility of of corporate overlords who make business decisions that may be extremely profitable but not that great for um, for the people who care about the game uh, was always looming. And perhaps this is it. Mm. They they said something in the statement, something dry and businessy like we you know we're, we're here to make sure that the the future of the player knows battlegrounds global brand is kind of <laughs> is kind of properly managed oh. <laughs> oh i know it's just it's such a it's a real it's uh, a cuddly yeah <laughs> um it's a real you know zero to millions of millions of <laughs> of, of dollars story um but i just maybe like realized that there's gonna there's probably gonna be a battlegrounds movie hmm and that's a weird full circle, full circle. <laughs> like strange. yeah someone will make a game of it <laughs> it's going to be Royale, but everyone's going to be in very boring great <laughs> i think it's going to be the uh well i was going to say like because there hasn't been like a sort of american teen remake of um of battle royale mm. which which there is for a lot of japanese horror movies for example right yeah. if you if you see battle royale it's kind of a horror it is a kind of horror movie really more than an action movie yeah. um at like that it hasn't had its like Ashton Kutcher in Battle Royale, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and maybe this will be that. That's because given that Plunkbag styling is kind of like tribal tattoo assholes in a big plane. <laughs> I never really got that impression from it. I was uh, everyone's just like incredibly blandly dressed. That's what's the weird thing about. Like, yeah, really, like, I think I think it's the logo. I think it's just the sort of the the logo and the the ultimate life or death battle mm. thing that makes me think of tribal tattoos for some yeah. reason. And yeah. there aren't loads of tribal tattoos in it. It's just of a kind i suppose maybe hunger games was the america battle royale but yeah yes sure it came from like its own novel series of like it's almost a it's a dystopian fiction i guess like so it's yeah, right, yeah yeah it, yeah yeah it's all the yeah, same but, but i mean and i think yeah. the hunger games sort of kick-started this generation of games about that stuff yeah, as well which hunger is games <laughs> for minecraft were a yeah. big factor yeah, in this true. so yeah it's, it's the circle of life <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, there's going to be a there's going to be a battlegrounds movie. I can feel it now. I can feel it. It's yep. going to be shit. There's been another massive commercial success in recent games? video games. That's a good um, segue, Tom. Cuphead has sold 100,000 copies. And I think it came out last night, <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> or was it a day yeah, ago? A couple Friday. of days ago. Like, Friday. That was fucking fast. <laughs> yeah. So Cuphead is the game that um, the incredible looking um, 2D platformer boss rush game, which looks like a cartoon from the 30s basically yeah. and it looks looks phenomenal the degree to which they've nailed that precise drawing style and animation style is unbelievable like yeah. uh, uh, I, i'd put like surely most of those sales down to the, it's the extraordinary way it looks looks like no yep. other game is it, is i bought it, it knowing i wouldn't like it <laughs> <laughs> and i played it for 10 minutes and i don't like it but god is it gorgeous <laughs> what is the what is the root of your not liking it um it's an extremely hardcore extremely difficult shoot 'em up in which when you die uh, as far as I played, I was just reset all the way back to the start of the level. There was no, I, there may be checkpoints later on, but I didn't get as far as one. And so every time I died, I lost all the progress I'd made, and uh, that was infuriating. And I knew it would be like I could tell they didn't missell the game to me at all. <laughs> uh, I'd definitely been told it was a hardcore, a brutally difficult platformer. I know I didn't like those, but I was so um, curious about the art style, I bought it anyway. Um, 
and uh, I'm glad I sort of saw it, <laughs> like just mm. the uh, the presentation as well. Like um, uh, it's got a quite a lot of different modes you go through before you play the game. There's like you know um, uh, title cards, and then a main menu, and then an intro, and then a sort of uh, bit where you're in a, someone's house and talking to them and then there's an overworld and then there's a shop and then you get and then, oh, there's tutorialism there somewhere I can't remember where in that order it comes um, and then you get to level one and level one is when I realized oh no not for me <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a shame hmm. I it? wonder I'm curious because I mean there's, so there's no mystery to its sales because hey I a person knowing I wouldn't like the game <laughs> bought it um but I do wonder if it's. Um, uh, it feels like the visuals have a very broad appeal, you know, mm-hmm. like they're nostalgic, but they're nostalgic for a thing that's, um, you know, probably ninety percent of the people, well, nearly a hundred percent of the people <laughs> buying it did not experience at the time, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. No, safe to say, long bet. before my time. Um, and so, uh, I think it's just generally appealing. I, I think the appeal is very broad of that visual style, and loads of people are like, "Oh my god, look at that! That looks amazing." Um, and I don't know if the appeal of the gameplay is broad. Uh, it's outside of what I like, but then Super Meat Boy is a massive success, and that's also mm. uh, you know basically the same kind of uh, reaction to that. I think Super Meat Boy had some stuff like cushioning mechanics, like the, the instant restart and the fast-paced levels. Yeah. Kind of they cushion that difficulty. Whereas it feels like Cuphead is like really old-school shmup design where. It's just you just have to memorize every formation of enemies coming in and just know what's going to happen yeah. before it does. Uh, Mark Brown posted a gif on Twitter that was a time lapse of I assume him fighting one of the bosses in the game and said this will tell you whether you're going to like Cuphead or not. Um, and I think that's probably true because uh, I watched it and I, at that time I'd already bought and played the game, so I knew. But uh, it would have been enough to, to tell me not to buy the game. <laughs> it was just. Uh, it's time lapse, so you don't see like a lot of specifics. You don't really know what the player is dealing with in terms of difficulty, but you can see, uh, oh, when that enemy shows up, he dies, and then when he goes back to the start, and then he does it again, and then like that enemy shows up, and he dies, and then he dies, and he dies, and then he defeats that enemy, he gets the next enemy, and he dies, <laughs> and then it's that again and again and again until he gets to like phase three, and phase three is very visually different. So even in a time lapse, you really spot that every time, and you see he gets to phase three like a couple of times and then for a while he doesn't get to phase two again for a long long time mm. and then it's like 10 more attempts at phase three before oh, he ever wow. gets through it and i'm just like oh my god <laughs> I, would, I would be punching the screen <laughs> i guess with, with that difficulty thing like it just gates all that art, artwork off is always the yeah that's the, the thing, thing i would uh, if it had i know they would never do this but if it had like a tourism mode that i could just kind of blast through I'd, well i was going to bring that up that. because like mm. they just announced that assassin's creed origins 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 oh, it's hard not to say origins, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, is we'll have a tourism mode. Yeah, it's like, yeah. like a museum mode or something. Do they call yeah. it? Yeah, just go for a walk in in Egypt. Yeah, it's mode. called Discovery Tour. I was at the press event where they showed it to us, oh, really? and um, they only showed us like a, a couple of minutes of it. Um, but it sounds brilliant. It's really really cool. And you go, you pick your character. Do if you want to be Julius Caesar or Cleopatra or one of the characters from the game, and then you wander around. You pick a tour, and you know it might be like a twenty minute tour. Uh, that shows you like evisceration protocols in ancient Egypt, <laughs> and the, the the clip they showed was of the main character looking at a body being eviscerated with you know the the hooks pulling brains out. It wasn't graphic, like it was just like a <laughs> really? it does, uh, somehow it was uh, like it was like a mannequin being operated right. on, but with no like bits or blood or anything really. Uh, so they've they've clearly toned it down, taken all the murder out of it, uh, and then just like giving you 
passages of uh, voiced text over these little animations uh, that describe to you some of the processes and cultures of ancient Egypt. And then you walk to the next bit. And I, I don't know whether it's going to be like, on the left, you've got the pyramids of Giza. <laughs> and now on the right, you've got some dudes. The right of Giza. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's a lovely idea. And it came from, they say it came from uh, teachers telling them that they right. used somehow used earlier Assassin's Creed games in you, lessons. You uh, know, I, I heard that as well. Yeah. Um, I was in Italy last week um, visiting a whole bunch of Italian developers, including Ubisoft Milan. Mm. But apparently, um, uh, on a completely unraced conversation with, I think, like the, the deputy mayor of culture for Milan was saying <laughs> that one of the things kind of changing the uh, stigma associated with games in Italy is the fact that Assassin's Creed's been used in schools. Because, oh, because its depictions of Renaissance Italy are like, pretty good mm. like obviously not accurate because at no point did a magic man hang glide <laughs> off um after like an ottoman prince um in order to rescue a magic egg but um broadly speaking its depictions of the time are really high fidelity so mm. they have you know value but you can just imagine the teachers kind of like trying dispatching to... guards <laughs> yeah, exactly. just one moment kids <laughs> take a, take all these roof guards out and then we'll go and see some uh, some cool shit yeah, that's really cool because they um always had the sense that well uh, i guess i kind of knew that they put like so much more effort into the historical side of this than i'm appreciating because mm. uh, as you point out the overall effect is not a realistic depiction of, mm. of what was going on there but i could tell those like work has gone into making parts of this authentic and i'd just like to be told which bits are authentic like what how much of this is true like even just the fact that uh, i think when i first played i didn't know that all of the targets are real people who were assassinated mm. Mm. They've, they've, um, they've always it's been variously hidden in various ways like perhaps too hidden given that you didn't know it's there but it's, there's always a, da- a database in assassin's creed games where um if you walk past a monument you can just look at it and click on it and it'll give you the actual history of the thing yeah mm. and the same exists for characters and there's like a, actually like a whole de- a codex in, inside the game but yeah it's like a codex for real law or as it's actually called history, <laughs> history. <laughs> yeah the best law of all yeah i liked um uh the new newer tomb raider games uh sort of took some steps in this direction where um when you found the collectibles were sort of trinkets um uh and when you found them uh you're prompted to like you know press a button to sort of examine them in your inventory and lara would just sort of say some stuff she knows about it and where Mm. it came from and what it meant and how it was used in the society it came from um I don't think they went very far with that, but that's something you could have gone much further with. If you've, um, there's a podcast called History of the World in a Hundred Objects or something. Oh, yeah, podcast voice about a podcast, um, and that's uh, an amazing delve into just uh, pick one object. Uh, you can't see the object because it's a podcast, <laughs> but uh, just describing how that fit into history and its context. Uh, if Lara Croft could do that every time you find a collectible, that'd be great. <laughs> just a good half-hour episode on uh, everything that uh, object meant. And uh, I've since played Uncharted, and that also has um, uh, uh, what am I? What's the word I'm looking for? Artifacts, I guess. Um, that uh, I think are mostly based on real items, um, but it tells you fucking nothing. You just find them. You can rotate them in your inventory. That's it. <laughs> no information whatsoever. I remember the last Tomb Raider game. Um, you'd look at, you'd read some text of a wall. And you'd learn like 20% of the language. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> the way of learning languages is look at it for a while. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know 10% more now. <laughs> like, well, I have 80% Greek and now I've looked at this and I'm up to 100 <laughs> But yeah, I, th- I don't think there's any harm to a cuphead of approaching it in that way. Like, I wonder, because clearly, clearly, a shitload of people are willing to buy it off. Presumably hype, right? I'm guessing hype. 
It's reviewing well. Yeah. But like it was extremely hyped. And I think the reason it was extremely hyped is because it made such a big impression at the E3 where it debuted because mm. it looked unlike anything else. Deservedly so. People get really excited. Mm. But it feels like... And, and there's no there's no requirement on those developers to subsequently make a game as populist as... That you know that is populist in sync with their popularity, right? Mm. Like it feels like it was more, more, you know, more popular than it will probably than the number of people who will probably really love it for what it is. I'm guessing, well, I unless there is an underserved audience for super hardcore, or it, it, in, 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 inducts new people into that genre, basically, because you want to see the art so much, you actually learn mm. to persevere and actually learn how to deal with that type of hard game and maybe like a percentage of those people get really into that and go play Ikaruga and it will be even worse <laughs> <laughs> but this is what I'm saying right like once upon a time you could kind of gatekeep those experiences in that way and seeing the end of Ikaruga was your reward mm. for seeing the beginning of Ikaruga a million times it was all all lasers right like, that's it, it, it's not like Cuphead as a reward I don't think in terms of but nonetheless it, it, it's, it's, it's even almost so. the principle of the thing yes, right like yeah. I've earned the right to see act five or something yeah. because I've seen acts I've seen act one a hundred times act two <laughs> 60 times act three uh something the ps4 just beeped and tried to no. eject its disc Might just that <laughs> sometimes. so yeah we live in i live in fear that that's going to happen during a bloodborne recording yeah. session so uh apologies the boss. it wanted to join in didn't like my take um what i'm saying is i think nowadays and maybe we released Ikaruga recently maybe they did do this like i'd be perfectly happy for those games to come with full easy mode mm. like show me all of the big cool bosses don't make me play them 80 times mode yeah i think there's something sort of similar in um cuphead where it's got two modes uh, that i'm aware of like it's this going from chris Schilling's review pc gamer uh, called simple and normal and uh chris said just okay read that as rock hard and the hardest thing ever basically <laughs> so super um but if you play on the easier one apparently you can't get to the very f- like f- end of the game like, oh, really? to do that you have to go up you'll take go up that oh, level God. And, you know, do the hardcore version that, that's yeah that's kind of not what i'd want them to do like <laughs> no. i want meaningfully just to properly yeah show yeah. me the game mode mm-hmm. like because you know to be honest i I could get everything I'm going to get out of this game by watching a Let's Play, I think. There's mm. probably not a lot for me to gain from playing yeah, it. Yeah, maybe. But, it, you, but as a developer, you quite like people to spend the 15 pounds. <laughs> I think it's 15 quid, right? Mm. Like, this is what I'm saying is, like, basically give me difficulty level of a walking simulator mode where I'm more than happy to spend the money for the three hours it takes me to kind of appreciate all mm. of the art and sound and the feel of the game, if not the kind of material, you know, not the, the kind of material experiences. Yeah, actually, an artist I follow was saying on Twitter recently that um, she wishes there was a way. She wants to just watch a Let's Play of the game, but she also wants to, like, pay the developer for it. Like, I'm guessing she must mean not the full price of the game, otherwise she could mm. just buy the game. Um, but, mm. yeah, if there was a way to, like, pay five bucks and watch, just watch the game, uh, she would do it. Yeah. So, yeah, perfectly good idea, because people, you know... Like, that's probably how I will experience Cuphead now, and they won't benefit from that. And, and I'm someone who likes super hard games, but that's the thing. Is like, I feel like, I, you know, I love Ikaruga, I love Super Meat Boy, but I don't feel like I have space in, for this, and I don't really want this experience at the moment. Like, I kind of fancy a more chilled experience, so Cuphead kind of goes into the box marked. It's not for me right now because of mm. its specifically the type of game that it is, whereas if, if I might have bought it for the two- to three-hour art tour mm. experience, as opposed to... Yeah, watch a YouTube. Watch one of them YouTubes. Mm. Actually, yeah, I don't want to watch YouTube because it'll be 
they'll have the same problem I do. <laughs> like they'll be enjoying it, but they'll still be dying and restarting all the fucking yeah, time, exactly, which is really yeah, frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe wait and watch, not a speed run, but like, like a really competent, yeah, quality playthrough. Yeah, I would watch a speed run actually. I watched a um, I watched the world record speed run of Death of the Outsider. I don't know if you saw that time. Oh yeah, no, I, beats I, it in nine minutes. <laughs> the entire thing, and it's I I just finished Death of the Outsider in about ten hours, eleven hours. <laughs> I spent two hours on each mission, um, and really really liked it. But it's it's so strange. I always find this. I always watch designed speedruns for this reason because it is like just like you kind of after you've spent so much time in a place, you almost want to watch your illusions about how it's constructed just be completely shattered. <laughs> yeah, and it's like because of some like mantling leaping bug that allows you to just sort of basically like fly through the air like <laughs> um, like a sort of a bounding Mario. Um, it's just Billy Lurk like bounces around Karnaka for ten minutes and then the world has changed. <laughs> really strange really strange experience don't watch that if you want the experience of death of the outside of the first time that's the opposite of the real thing <laughs> somebody figured out um that uh, they did a tutorial on steam uh for how to get out of heat signatures practice mode if you destroy the practice terminal so and i, I read i had to read this because i uh, as the developer of the game uh, know that you can just do this on a menu there's just a menu option for this we thought of this we put the menu option in it's trivially easy to do this this person linked to his 13 step guide out of dirt and I'm like oh god did you not see the menu option <laughs> um, and I read it and actually uh, it's uh, really fun because he does know there's an easy way he doesn't actually find the menu option he knows of another easy way um, but uh the issue is the objective of the practice mode is like this very small cell and you've got to get to the end of it. But if you destroyed the room that the end terminal is in, you can't interact with it and there's no way to get out of the, the ship. Uh, but actually, the practice world does not take place in a completely dis- like another dimension or an actual you know secondary game within a game. You're, you're still in the same game. We just spawn you really far away. <laughs> and this guy figured out that if you blow up the right parts of the ship in the right way it can kind of like nudge you with a little bit of velocity and then you can fast forward time and try and drift back to the rest of reality um <laughs> out of the matrix yeah or like yeah but back into the real world um and uh i haven't checked but i'm pretty sure if you did that like the sort of we put like a crt filter on the screen to show you you're in a virtual world not the real one um i think that would just stay on for the rest of your life <laughs> i think you would be like yeah there's a whole real world in here but you are still in a simulation <laughs> like don't don't forget like you haven't woken up yet <laughs> how would you then wake up um well like i say there is an option on the menu at all times <laughs> that's amazing so and so does that does that actually get them out or does that does it get it gets them to the rest of the game you can i think in fact i'm you can probably hit some I imagine you can hear some bugs doing this because uh, there are checks for like, oh, don't do this when you're in practice mode. Um, but you can get to a station. And I guess he can access missions and stuff <laughs> and live a life of sorts. <laughs> but you're a virtual man now. Yeah. I like that idea. That's an excellent idea. For, if, he, for Let's play. if he ever hits the R key, he'll lose his whole life since the last time. Because <laughs> that's the reset practice mode button. Huh. So you actually get a restart option only in that context so if you're really yep. worried about losing your character yeah you could do everything in virtual reality but you reset back to the beginning of the simulation <laughs> yeah then you i wonder actually what happens if you go into the practice terminal when you arrive at the station <laughs> you could be in the next nested layer of practiceness <laughs> and the time I, goes really a little slower there's no way this is true but i would really love it if another crt filter happened over the top of the other one <laughs> it just gets even more like scan lined and um chromatically a bird. A bird? 
aberrated aberrated yeah yeah <laughs> she put a little glass dome over the arky and a little hammer <laughs> you could never accidentally press it in an emergency you smash glass you live a full rich other life in, in this pocket dimension <laughs> yeah you should have it if you stay there long enough then you can cut to kind of like your character graying kind of surrounded by loved ones <laughs> increasingly dense crt layers over the top of all of their children and then like granddad can like I love you all. And presses R. <laughs> and then bang, they're back at the beginning of the kill people simulation. I feel like this was an episode of Next Generation. I think it might have been. Doesn't Picard play a flute at the end of this? <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of, um, I guess, easy modes and things, um, I, I just started Divinity Original Sin 2, which is, I know you've been playing, Tom, yep. and that has reviewed extremely well, mm-hmm. which I can believe because I really like the first game. But nonetheless, um, and I, I, was, it, I suddenly realized having been a very sort of I play everything on hard kind of person for a long time, hmm. I picked easy. I picked explore mode because they call it because initially I was really confused because the modes are called Explorer, Explorer Classic, um, Challenge, Challenge and Honor. Yeah, <laughs> you have no honor if you is Challenge harder than Honor or is Honor harder than Challenge? Honor's, I know, I know honor's the, the hardest. Classic and Dishonorable. It, and it only yeah. tells you what they actually mean when you select one of them. Yeah, I had the same thing. I spent ages on this decision. I'm like, oh God, I need more information. You can't do this to me. I need to know which yeah, one of these. And also, I need to know. It. Also, I need to know: Am I committed to this? Which is, mm. it turns yeah. out, you're not. Um, and yeah, when you select it, it gives, just gives you more information. You haven't committed even then, so you can just go back. But. Yeah, that was just the menu thing. But like having consulted it, I, I, I did that thing of like reaching for normal mode. And then I was like, hang on. It says explicitly exploration mode is people who just kind of want to experience the story and run around, not worry too much about combat. And I was like, shit. My, the, you know, I appreciated Divinity's combat, but I wasn't that interested in solving every single combat puzzle relative to seeing the whole game. And I was like, there's a mode. There was a mode. Then you could pick for this. But it's some it's something that's ticked over my brain where I'm now letting myself just pick the play it for fun mode. And it's great. Yeah, I actually started on Classic. Um, and the first fight that you get into is like against... Uh, they're bugs. <laughs> it's cool it's they are. some worms. Um, <laughs> and uh, I died. <laughs> like, I, I could do my best attack could do like 10% of their health bar and uh, they could destroy me in one turn. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, I'm going to Explorer. I, I did beat that fight uh, and I actually played a little bit further and I, I got through some other fights that were you know difficult at first and I figured them out and I thought, okay, I've had the experience of figuring this out. I don't want that anymore. <laughs> I want to go to the Explorer mode. Make it easy for me, please. Yeah, because I found Divinity 1, sorry, Divinity Original Sin 1 quite punishing. Really difficult, really. Um, but... Like so, the the character I'm playing has a trait, which means that you get two action points back when you kill something, which is a really great thing mm-hmm. and really nice. Because um, Divinity is like an action point based game. It's it's like the original really brilliant evocation of playing tabletop role playing, where you sort of you, obviously there's no GM that can be quite as adaptive as a GM, but you kind of almost like negotiate what you want to do with the game and your pool of action points. Mm-hmm. So it's not like XCOM or something where you have like a move and a shot mm-hmm. or a double move and no shot, or and then that interacts with abilities. You have a bar of action points, yeah, and moving consumes them, abilities consume them, um, and uh, f- attacking consumes them, and doing items and talking to people can consume them as well. So it's it's just how do you want to spend this pool? And so having a mechanic in there where when you kill something, you get some back, adds a really cool sort of pace pacey feel 
Mm. to the game like it's it's just a nice mechanic it'd be nice if it was a default mechanic almost because it means that once you kill one you almost plan around that right like killing blow here lets me do something else here and do this kind of thing there's a cool thing with uh, the rogue class and anyone who has that set of skills um, where you can kind of uh, do like action point down payments <laughs> so you like you get more this turn but you're going to lose that same amount next turn mm. um, which is like actually at first it sounds like oh it's a heavy price to pay and then you realize no that's just moving action points around that's like a, you don't lose anything in the process it's just do you want them now or do you want them later and so it's uh, really encourages quite a roguey way of thinking which is if I can get the kill now, it's worth it. Like if I can, if those two extra action points will let me finish this guy off, then I want them now, even if it means I'm drained mm. later. And I found that stuff actually way more gratifying on the easier difficulty level, straight mm. off the bat, because on easy, I can those slug things you fight at the beginning, I can kill in either one or two hits, depending on what I'm doing. Mm. Which means that like clearing out a room of them with a big two-handed hammer is really fun, as opposed to. An experience that I like, like the Pillars of Eternity thing of like every fight, even against some dogs, is like a planned thing. It's helped me kind of pick up pace with the game really quickly rather than immediately hitting the the slog element of it. And I kind of guarded against saying that's a bad thing about these games because I genuinely enjoy strategic RPG combat, but it's really nice to be able to tune it to not full Diablo, but let me just mm. let me fight this at the pace that I want the narrative to move which yeah. is the way you know it's well-tuned. It's like, it feels like you had a fight, but it wasn't like you fought for two hours and then had a f- five-minute conversation. Like, mm. I don't know if this is uh, different on Explorer versus Classic, but I think it was when I was playing on Classic against those slugs the first time I fought them. I set fire to them both, and when it was their turn, um, the slug on the left just ran away to a barrel and hit that. And I was like, what the fuck? It's just gone mad. Um but it was a barrel full of water, and the water flooded out and put it out. <laughs> like, <laughs> fucking hell, the slugs know how to do that? You knew what was in the barrel? Come on! <laughs> yeah, but should... I was also really impressed. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about that stuff, because, like, that, that is divinity for me. Like, the system stuff. Obviously, like, adaptive difficulty levels is, is makes it more accessible. But, like, it's so intensely... Um, sort of almost pedantic about how all of its different systems interact. So... Um, you know, how fire and water and ice and, you know, blood conducting electricity was the thing we discussed last time, I think, mm. about, you know, very, very divinity mechanics. Um, but this loops into exactly how characters you play work. So um, I'm playing as an undead character and undead are hurt by healing spells and potions mm. and healed by poison. So are you a custom character or a original I'm a, one? I'm an original one, which I, an origin one, which I want to talk about as well. Yeah, I got stuck on... I, I spent... I got stuck on the character creation screen, so I just I, did not know what to commit to. I would like uh, you all to be proud of me for breezing through character creation in a mere 45 minutes this time. <laughs> I got through it which about, is some kind of record I got me. through it in about five, which is a miracle yeah. for me. And the reason for that, um, we can come back to the kind of ramifications of being undead, um, but the reason for that is if you don't aware, so the game has obviously full deep character creation um, for all of its races and all of the undead versions of all of those races, as I think we mentioned before. But the thing I thought that was really interesting, and this is such a fucking great idea, and I can't believe no other RPG has done it, where you have the choice of like four or five or six what are called origin characters, where you can customize their appearance and their class and their abilities and stuff like that, but they fundamentally have a a backstory. You can even rename them, but you probably shouldn't because they can say their own name. <laughs> right. So they have like a very specific backstory, uh, a very specific personal quest that they want to resolve, and sorry, Tom. 
some of them have names that are kind of like they're almost like a nickname or a role. So you could like having a, a different real name might work. Yeah, like the Red Prince would yeah. really work to change. Um, so for some of that's them, me. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. I, I was almost him. I'm I, I'm playing as uh, a undead called Thane, um, who right. is mm. rad. Who is like he just woke up one day and like, million years has passed and <laughs> wants to figure out what happened to his people who are now probably ancient kind of thing. That's me. You're probably wondering how I got into this situation. <laughs> exactly. um, but what I didn't realize, and that's a really nice idea. So you have these characters that are almost like prepackaged, and as a group, they almost feel like a kind of really nicely um, curated like set of D and D characters or something like that yeah. like they're all really not, quite nicely realized you can click a button on the character creation screen and the character will kind of like step forward and tell you what their deal is yeah i really like that actually that was um yeah that got you both the preview of like who this person is and what their personality is um and also is the voice acting good because <laughs> that's the like 80 percent of my decision is going to be based on that and you do get some choices about yeah like i say so you decide what class they are and 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 you can swap skills in and out and i gave him hair <laughs> yeah, sort of raggy grey hair now, but it looks rad. Um, oh man, um, I so I, I did go with very prince, but I also sort of re-rolled at one point to try a custom character, and I wanted to be be an undead lizard. Um, and I was so impressed to see that when you get to the skin color options, there still are the same number of different skin colors, but they're all just like they're like American Psycho business card colors, <laughs> like <laughs> washed bone and oh no, well, I like to call it bone tone. <laughs> I can't remember any of them, but they're good. Um, but the rad thing about that, and I didn't realize, so when you do this, you're like, oh, cool, there's some preset character options for you. That's mm-hmm. nice. And, you know, Bowsgate did something similar-ish. What's rad about it is those are the companions. Yeah. That's, that's the the fucking, like, you know, ex- last end of the exploding brain meme. Kind of, <laughs> um, reason this is genius is those are the fucking companions. So basically, you can choose to not have a protagonist and you play as one of the companions and like that's like any rpg you can think of would probably work in that way like you ask yourself the question what if one of the companions you get over the course of your quest Mm. was the main character and their loyalty mission became an alternate main thread for them and it's like that's fucking genius and that's exactly how divinity works so i'm really intrigued about this because i'm um uh like i say i've played it two ways now I've, i've tried to be a custom character I picked an origin character because um, I don't know what I would have decided if I was left to my own devices, but I just heard somebody say, just pick an origin character because there's so much like unique stuff and um, uh, specific things about them. And then I picked one and I got into the game and, and I've discovered, oh, all the other origin characters are here too. And I, they, I can have them in my party. And then also the way Divinity works is you can just switch to one of those people and just be them and just walk up to people and talk to them as that person. But uh, when it comes to... Uh, their personal business um some of them like if i be that person and i go and talk to the person they want to talk to for their personal quest type thing i i feel like i get the whole conversation but in others there's one where like um one of those characters just needs to talk to another character and i won't say who or what happens but um or uh, uh i won't say who i will say what happens uh which is that she kills him <laughs> and i as the person controlling her um and like at that point she was alone like i'd gone off on 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 her own to do this um i still didn't get the actual conversation like she uh kills this guy and i hear it described from my from another character's perspective and it explains this with like oh there's a source link thing so you're always present in the background whenever one of these people is but like controlling that character in a lot of ways you are that character 
But if it's not the one you picked at the start, I think you don't get the full skinny on what I they're doing. You get to make their choices. I think that's the thing. Yeah, because you do get so that's, like, full that's dialogue intriguing. options for them. You get to make quite big decisions about who they are. Yeah, like for some reason, my ancient skeleton dude is like a fundamentally quite nice but proud skeleton. Like you know, we'll look after people. I mean, you have to make a choice at the beginning of the game to rescue some of those other companions, but like. Um, but, you know, kind of has his own character and that seems to fit with what's going on with in his plot. So it's not like you, you pick and you just role players with one specific pre-written character the entire time. It's just really clever. It just works so well. It's yeah, a it's nice. a good system. Um, I actually, I started to have uh, buyer's remorse with this because I've been told to play an origin character because all the unique content and then I discovered, oh, but they're all just around and I can have them in my party and I can even play as them. So don't I just get that unique content anyway? And by picking one, I've sort of wasted my chance to be a custom character, which I can't do now. That There are no... Um, I don't get to design a character. I, I have not found any undead lizard people. <laughs> that's who I really want to be. So that's why I went back and re-rolled. Um, and uh, like I say, I think there are some differences from being an origin character versus just having one in your party. Um, and also uh, the undead lizard I played... Um, I quickly hated her voice <laughs> I realized, oh, I actually don't want to play this character at all. Um, but I had a really weird situation to do with this where um, if you, if one of your party dies in combat, as long as they don't all die, they just sort of stay dead and you can bring them back to the resurrection scroll. But um, uh, I was in a situation where uh, all the stuff I collected was on my main character. My main character is the Red Prince. Uh, who, by the way, you can customize his appearance, but you can't change his skin color <laughs> because it has to be red. Um, uh, he's a lizard, by the way. Um, he's like, uh, I liked him immediately because he's a kind of like uh, aloof, but slightly foolish <laughs> prince. Someone who's like, believes um, uh, he's uh, a big deal, but actually his current situation is not at all um, reflective of that. And uh, so he's always going through the world like... Uh, shocked that people haven't heard of him and stuff mm. yeah uh, he's a complete asshole to you when you meet him <laughs> as an NPC rather than as as the, you so I was playing as him and I'd um, my first companion was um, uh, is it Losa yeah the bard the, the bard um, whose story I liked but I didn't pick her because I didn't like her voice acting mm. <laughs> um, anyway she was my companion and we got in a fight and the red prince got killed and Losa was still alive but she didn't have the inventory that I'd, that I'd had she has her own inventory and she didn't have any resurrect scrolls um, and so I couldn't bring him back so now I'm just Losa <laughs> just like I'm running around and then while I'm running around a guy comes up to me and um, uh, your objective at this point is to get off this island um, and there are seemingly lots and lots of different ways of doing it um, but this guy runs up to me and says oh hey I'm looking for um, uh, I think he's maybe even heard of me um and he's looking for some... Like, he's got a plan to get off the island, but it's a two-man plan, and so he needs someone else. Um, and he asked me to, to join him, but he stresses right up front, this can't... I can't... You can't have anyone else with you. It just has to be me and you. You can't take anyone else with you. And I'm like, I'm not even the main character. <laughs> like, I'm the psychic. The main character's dead over there. You, you escaped, like, do you I just the plot. That's it. Yeah, I, I was like... Uh, sort of one part of me was saying well say no to this because this isn't even uh, I'm not even the right character to be doing this but then the other part <laughs> was like can I just go with this <laughs> I think I'm just going to say yes because even if I decide not um, even if I do want the Red Prince back 
uh, it would be interesting to just find out what this guy's plan is and maybe we can exploit it in some way yeah. um, and I haven't got any further that quest so I don't know how, how that works out but um, it was kind of an amazing moment of like have I just <laughs> yeah, I've just am left I the that pro- story am I the protagonist now? Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing It's there's quite a lot of um, I do want to know how far it would let me go with that uh, because you know, like I say there's some differences in, in being an origin character versus having an origin character with you I think um, and I also hit a thing that was um, uh, really subtle and surprising uh, in that my first com- there's somebody who uh, yeah, trying to get some oranges back <laughs> and I found the person who stole the oranges and I stole he was asleep. Was it? Would you say it was a divinity oranges sin? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it was my oranges story. Um, so I found the guy. He was asleep. And so I snuck up to him and I pickpocketed him and I found an orange. So I stole the orange. And then it turns out for some totally unrelated reason, my character actually needed something from this guy that was not to do with the oranges. And so I actually woke him up and talked to him. And then we had this whole thing. And... Uh, this is going to sound weird, but for the personal quest that I needed to do with this guy, he needed something that was inside the orange <laughs> that I had already stolen from him. And in the conversation I had, he just he said, oh, I need to do this thing, but I need I need this particular herb um, and I don't have any. Do you have any? And uh, I, I hadn't heard of this herb, but my character said uh, one of my options was, uh, yeah, you can have the one I have. And so I did that and I, I did it and it all completed. And then I went back and did it with this... Uh, like I say, I re-rolled. And I did, um, uh, um, basically, I went back and did it a different way. I didn't steal the orange first. And if you don't steal the orange, he already has the herb that's inside it. And so he just goes with that. And he talks about like how huh. it's, it's something... Because he stole it, he's a bit conflicted about whether or not he should use it. Um, and so if you've stolen that from his inventory, just this is the only circumstance I can think of this would have happened. Like if you pickpocketed it from, from him before talking to him, uh, he just completely rolls with the fact that he doesn't have any and your character rolls with the fact that you do have some <laughs> and they just work it out. It's amazing. It was really just a phenomenal bit of um, like complex RPG design. Mm. It's interesting because I think the fine thing I find off-putting about Divinity, not off-putting, but like that I have to adjust to that the origin stuff has helped with is it's not like it's it's a nice it's a pleasant game to spend time in but it's not like the most compelling narrative or anything like there are bits of like funny writing and things that i like there's you know you know the writing is is fine but like i don't feel like drawn into the central mystery at all i don't know why maybe it's just it's you know it's it's quite magic-y stuff it's it's not like deeply personal well people have personal quests in this but um the sort of the source stuff is always very airy fairy it it feels like it kind of has the tone of a DD campaign Mm. where like no one's taking it that seriously like Mm. you know what i mean like serious things are happening but the players are all messing around like given this design for co-op as well maybe that makes sense that you don't want a story that people are going to have to really sit and listen to because ultimately they're going to blast through it but the origins characters really help me with that as well because like they kind of give you a complete character to kind of occupy that fits in that world and kind of meshes with its silliness and that kind of thing whereas if you're inclined to try and create like a serious character in that game it will probably it will fight you at every turn like you press the sneak button and you turn to a bush <laughs> like that's that's the rpg that it is so i um the first like eight times i did it I turned into a barrel which I, I now know is just coincidence but um <laughs> as it happens i was wearing a bucket on my head and yeah, this I'm looks an awful well. lot like uh the 
the hat just gets bigger. <laughs> like <laughs> the bucket, the barrel is essentially a large bucket. <laughs> and so that animation is fun. And I is that because your new character is undead? Uh, no, I just <laughs> I was the red prince at this time. <laughs> It's because I moused over a bucket and it said bucket brackets helmet. <laughs> like, oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, like because as as Fane at the beginning, because if you're undead, you have to cover your face because you're a skeleton. Um, you have to wear clothes and not let on you're a skeleton, basically um, a lot. Um, but uh, apart from the conversation options, where you have the you get given loads of opportunities. I don't know if this is just Fane or all skeletons to like allude to the fact you're a skeleton. Like sometimes <laughs> you get that option with someone to say like, by the way. Hmm. I'm a skeleton um, underneath this bucket that I'm wearing. Um, but a lot of the times... You get this- <laughs> I'm naked except for the bucket. <laughs> You're not going to believe this, but I'm actually undead. <laughs> um, and so like, at the beginning of the game, you have like this magic mask that can make you appear to be any race, and then you lose it really quickly. And so I had to just find whatever was on the shipwreck right. um, to disguise the fact that I'm a skeleton, that was a bucket. Um but you get loads of really good options, like talking to like an orphan child alone on the beach, scared of everything, not knowing what's coming next. And the child will say something like, "There's just so many things to be afraid of." And you have like the option because you get you, when you can tell, it'll say like, "I, you know, one of my tags is mystic, so I get to say things that are kind of related to mysticism." Or like scholar, I could say things that are scholarly. And one of them is just undead, and it's like, "Yes, the world is full of terrifying things." <laughs> and the implication is that you just sort of like. You're almost on the always on the edge of going like just slowly revealing, taking off the bucket <laughs> to reveal the howling gilded skeleton. I like those tags. Um, you have like uh, sort of racial ones, and um, yeah, like uh, I don't know whether you call it like profession or whatever, like mystic versus mm. scholar versus um, scoundrel or, um, or outlaw. I think it is. Um, but there's also one for every origin character. Like each origin character mm. has their own unique tag. And the thing I, that took me a bit to get used to is I'm used to, in Fallout, yeah, in Fallout 3 and um, uh, 4, if you have, like, a high enough science skill and it says science in front of a dialogue option, you know, this is, like, a sort of super cool option that's going to completely solve the problem for you and it's your reward for having a high enough stat in that. And so I'm used to those... If it has, like, a tag in front of it, I'm used to that being, like, oh, this just solves the problem. This is just, like, total ace this thing. Um, and in Divinity, that's not the case at all. They're just like, <laughs> this is the thing. This. this is a thing a lizard would say. And uh, <laughs> I'm in a lot of situations where lizards are being screwed over, and I always have the option to be completely indignant about it or furious about it. Um, and one guy was just like, um, he'd been singing some songs for us, and he was like, oh, do you know any from, from your culture? And my lizard option was like, um, try but ultimately fail to remember the song of your people. <laughs> That's my lizard special ability. I'm like, screw up your eyes, think really hard. No, no, no sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. It, I, I mean, I'm only like an hour and a bit in, and it's already great. Mm. What I really like to do, I think, is is do this run with you know with a with one of the origin characters. But I'd re- actually really like to play this co-op. It feels like, mm. relative to original Divinity, like I much prefer the introduction. It's much better, much slicker. Mm. Um, but also, like, I, I mean, also it's got like a full set of GM tools and things as well. But like, I really like the idea of doing it again in co-op with, and then be generating specific characters. Because if yeah, like yeah. the um, the the origin characters, the fact that you pick one and then the game populates the, the rest of the game with the others has um has a little bit of a sense of like uh playing D with 
computer-controlled mates, right? Because, mm. you know, which is the, the point of companion characters in RPGs anyway, but it, it I think it achieves that quite successfully because it feels a lot more organic because you knew that you could have been any of them. Yeah. And it's a, a weird thing, but yeah. Yeah, it's real good. Um, it's funny because the other character I was really strongly considering going with hates me. <laughs> like, we're sort of, we're born mortal enemies virtually. Um, and that's an interesting thing to deal with. <laughs> well, so, I don't know. I So... Given that you are the Red Prince, this is not a spoiler or anything. When you were on the beach at the beginning of the the island, mm-hmm. was there someone looking out to sea, like a companion to me? No, um, I, I've since played as a custom character and found the Red Prince there, right. and I think there's just no one there for me. Okay, I was just wondering if you swapped someone else in because no, I don't think like because so. I had I had a really lovely thing because the the Red Prince was complete asshole to me, mm-hmm. like when I met him, and I decided that my skeleton doesn't take shit. So just like fuck you, I'm off. And then it's nice that that was the only character I met afterwards, like after the right. after the intro. And then there's a really nicely written sort of little dialogue where you can. I think that's the one thing I really like about its writing, actually. Given the, the the high stakes fantasy stuff isn't like hugely deep, but it doesn't just hit you with negative consequences for being mean in a way that I think quite a lot of Bioware RPGs do. Like mm. it feels like an, an argument. Being an asshole to someone in a Bioware game creates like an argument straight away. Like, no one ever goes, like, fair enough. <laughs> like, or something like that. Whereas, um, like, you, you, this feels more natural. You walk up to someone and say, actually, you were an asshole earlier, and I'm cross at you. And they go, well, I respect that. But, you know, we're in a bigger, bigger fish to fry now. Like, you would- There's actually, um, it did fall down a bit because they have a feature, which I think is a good feature, where um, I think they don't want you to not pick a uh, particular... NPC as a companion just because their class happens to not be what you need for your party. So whenever you meet these origin characters after you've sort of uh, had your initial um, uh, conversation you and you've decided, or they've decided to join you and you've decided you want them to join you, they'll say, um, they'll give you the option of like okay, well normally I'm a fighter but do you want me to like specialise in magic or, or stealth or something? <laughs> uh, which is a bit of a weird conversation Very at, job at the best of times. It? It's like, what are your strengths? Well, it's all things. Um, what do you need? But like I say, one of these characters just has a very good reason to hate me and everyone like me. Um, and uh, she was absolutely upfront about this and which like uh, almost killed me in our initial conversation. Um, and then eventually I used, I think I, I sort of specialized in, in wits and um, uh, I used it to sort of like put forward a sort of arch and strange line of reasoning. It's kind of like, <laughs> but this is the last thing I expect for you and I to team up together. And she bought it. And then, like, but just. And she was like, I guess I suppose I shouldn't kill you yet. And the next thing she says, also, what class would you like me to be? <laughs> I'll just reinvent my entire life's profession at your whim. <laughs> also, I'm pretty sure, I want to start again and try this at some point, I'm pretty sure you have the option to kill every companion in the game in their sleep in the first part of the game. <laughs> at which point they don't appear in the game at all. I I've imagine. heard that you can kill anyone in, yeah. in Divinity. Yeah. Interesting. Really interesting. Um, can't wait to go back. I've, to it. Yeah, that's, that does actually um, uh, tie into my experience so far because I, the Orange's Quest did not end well with me. Um, I, I think I just sort of said something wrong in the conversation when I was trying to turn it in. Um, uh, and the person I was... Uh, it took me like six hours to do this fucking quest. It had been my, that became my main quest. You know, that was the one where it was the first one I got. And so even though loads of other opportunities came up and lots of other, it was clear to me there so was this fucking origins thing. Yeah. Origin. Oranges. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
even though it's clear to me there's loads of other ways off this island because this is the first one I encountered I'm like I'm going to find these fucking oranges and I'm going to bring them back to the fucking guy who wants the fucking oranges uh, and then I did and I slightly screwed up the conversation in some way and uh, he attacked me and so I had to fight him <laughs> and then I ended up fighting just it's one of those things where like you know if you attack an NPC in town in Skyrim or something if you're not level 25 you're getting absolutely slaughtered and you know everyone attacks you and it's, it's game over um and it, probably if I'd done this immediately, it would have been game over. But I had enough companions at this point. Like, your level is not so, as important as just how many people you have in your party at this point. Um, and with four people, um, we were actually able to kind of take him on. But it it did kind of spill out. Like, every I think, okay, it's these three guys. And we kill, like, two of them. And then there's just like, oh, there's two more people around the corner. And I think there might just be other people in the town who just saw this happen. <laughs> and I think I've, like, the, it's, um, the starting sort of town is... Um, uh, Fort Joy's ghetto and the ghetto is just like a mortuary now. <laughs> there's just <laughs> corpses everywhere because we've had to like one by one just kill everybody who, who got into the orange fracas <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's uh, but I didn't really think about it at the time at the time it kind of felt like oh this is one of the ways this quest ends is you can have a, a killing everybody <laughs> in the town there is a uh, yeah there's a fight scene with the key characters and I had noticed oh they seem to spill out and I, these other two characters I'm not sure if they were really part of the quest we just killed them anyway because um, they attacked us and now that that sort of linking into the thing I heard that in Divinity you can kill anybody so I think this may have been more of an emergent solution than I realised <laughs> <laughs> And that's how the oranges situation was resolved. <laughs> uh, did you have big town fear in this game at all? Um, not really. I think actually, <clears throat> sorry. I think the genuinely the oranges are oh, for fuck. <laughs> 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 I hate this. The oranges character option um, has almost so i think what i've identified is that i tend to create ciphers in rpgs like quite blank main characters and that the rest of the world reflects off because i'm kind of worried about making big decisions about characters that might shut options off later Mm. on whereas choosing an origins character shuts down so many options but gives you a specific sense of who your character is straight away in a way that i find that stuff less intimidating partly yeah. because i will probably refuse quests unless you know i'm not gonna 100 percent this game i'm mm. i want to have an adventure and do the things that make sense for me to do and so that sensibility feels very supported by the game and that means that big town is is less frightening <laughs> as a whole because it's just a it's just a big town made up of small stories <laughs> like jack nicholson said in that movie. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Um, um, yeah, I haven't had it either. Um, I think it's partly because you're sort of you're just in one section of this town. Is it it's because the of, town isn't especially big? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Put simply, <laughs> the town is not so big. It was too big, and then you killed enough people to make. It <laughs> yeah, I want the town size. just big enough that I can kill about half the people who live there <laughs> <laughs> to win a quest. <laughs> it takes a big town to win a quest. Um, yeah, no, it's great apparently other great and extremely time-consuming game that I'm attempting to play at the same time is Divinity, uh, which we should definitely, definitely talk about, Tom, mm. is... Back on the Total War crack. Total War, <laughs> Warhammer 2. Um, before we do talk about this, I should give mm. a very minor disclaimer um, that I I didn't work on the game, but I did some work adjacent to the game in an official capacity in that in the collector's edition of Total War, Warhammer 2, there is a little book, guidebook thing um to the game uh which i wrote uh which was a really cool thing to get to do um and it meant that i i, I obviously had to, you know to write a guidebook had to play the game quite a long time ago um 
but yeah so I should disclose that because I'm going to talk about the game and what I like about it mm. but I did some work for Creative Assembly on it so there you go there's my there's my disclaimer Tom you should talk about that you played way more than me so you should should lead oh, I'm sure I have one. actually I mean um, it's always difficult with um, Total Warhammer in particular because it really focuses unless, uh, unlike the historical Total Wars it really focuses down on four factions then tries its best to make those four factions really meaningfully different and exciting in their own right and Warhammer is just a brilliant uh, vehicle for this because the races the factions are just mm. so insanely different anyway and there's all, all of the kind of artwork is done not, not is designed you know all of the, the, the look and feel of each race is already there and in mm. place and that's not to uh, denigrate the talent of the artists who have actually brought it to life but they've, they've done an incredibly good job of making all of the the units look exactly like the models and move mm. just kind of how you always imagined they would even the like super awesome creatures like phoenixes are amazing the high elf phoenixes are just like beautiful glowing uh, as a phoenix would be a beautiful glowing bird but you know it's sort of the, the model comes to life in the, in the way that you know you you, you would hope um and just that that aspect of it alone has been wonderful just to see that world realized in such a good uh, such a clever way specifically especially the battlefields which are like some of the most beautiful battlefields they've done because you just can't you yeah, can't do so much with um a historical total war uh but in this they've they've gone fully 100% into just mad high fantasy stuff so you're in Orthwan which is where the high elves live and uh, on the world map, there are just rainbows everywhere and like cyclones of magic just kind of <laughs> weaving through the mountains. And it's, it's absolutely just beautiful. And when you actually go and fight in those places, like you, you see all that shit just around you, just towering. Like it's, it's, I've paused the game so often just to get in a close up on a unit and then just sort of like create these beautiful like mm. snapshots of, the, of this world. At some point, somewhere in every battlefield, something is shooting up into the sky. <laughs> yeah. So like, it's some sort of laser yeah. or, you know, uh, some sort of magic. Um, and all the lighting is uh, lovely as well, and the square box is really nice. So, uh, just as a kind of, um, just as an aesthetic achievement, I think it's it's, it's my favourite Total War. But the thing I love about it even more than that is that they've utterly streamlined the game. They've just done hundreds of small things that make it easier. Like they, they've mm. just taken all the friction and the kind of the st- stress stressful stuff out of it and it feels like playing civilization old civ where you just click next turn next turn next turn mm. all the time because it puts so little in the way in between you and actually getting to the next turn and that thing where you're um clicking you know like any of these games you, you you're fairly you're constantly clicking next turn but it's not it's actually better paced than civ because there's always new stuff to build they've accelerated the game in smart places so uh, like city growth seems to be much faster so you're always unlocking new options of stuff to build in different towns um, uh, army movements are the same the whole game just feels faster it seems to be fa- faster progress is faster um, and a lot of the smart stuff they've done with like tying technology into buildings makes your decisions on the world map as of what you're building and how you're constructing your cities much more meaningfully important uh, so it's just loads and loads of small things they've done to make it work um, And but the best thing of all is they've actually just They've, it's the the game mode is completely different. It's like the way the game works now in terms of your objectives is completely refreshed. So normally in Total War, you pick one of loads of factions and the game says, okay, conquer these three territories that are in various parts of the map by this amount of time. That's how you win. And it's basically just, you know, it's, it's always quite a boring thing. They've tried to put twists on it in the past with, you know, Rome, Total War, where, you know, Factions can, world events can happen and people can turn against you and there could be betrayals and things. But what Total War Warhammer 2 says is, okay, all of 
the factions are after the same thing. There's an enormous vortex in the middle of the world, and everyone can affect the vortex by performing rituals. And everyone has a unique resource they need to collect to power up the ritual and actually kind of execute the next phase. And it's a giant race. And in fact, there's a li- literally a bar at the top of the screen where you can see how far along each of the factions are. So you can see who's getting ahead and who's falling behind, who's about to activate the next ritual. Um, and who, which basically basically says, this is who you need to screw over <laughs> if you're behind. Uh, and this is who you need to look out for if you're ahead, uh, which is absolutely brilliant. Uh, just that one little icon gives you so much drive mm. and so much impetus to mm. actually go out and affect the world. So if I'm um, lizard men and I see that the high elves have, you know, one up on me, you can you can hire mercenary forces to go out and harass them. Uh, or you can just send your own forces to go out and harass them. Uh, because whenever you commit to one of these rituals to move yourself along the bar, uh, those rituals, like, make three of four of your cities the ritual sites and you have to protect them at all costs. And if someone attacks them, it will disrupt the ritual and put you back. So it it becomes a real kind of scrabble on and and the map is brilliantly designed for this because everyone is kind of on these big islands around the central vortex. Uh, so everyone's kind of like hopping island hopping around and just kind of getting into loads of conflicts everywhere and being really scrappy even and you're really rewarded for being proactive and traveling all over the map and fighting loads of stuff. And it says um, like each faction is attuned to a certain climate. So the game's saying don't play it like Civ and very slowly conquer all this throw your armies into this place and wreck it and then get, go back home and just constantly go and kind of harry and harass mm. really really exciting so of all I, I love what they've done with it the factions mm. are so exciting yeah uh, I, they all have their own which other f- yeah, there's four yeah so there's Lizardmen uh, I said I always mention Lizardmen because I've been playing them the most uh, High Elves Dark Elves and Skaven yeah, cool. Skaven yeah. are the most fun I've had mm. with Total War they are I think. their special ability is so good. Uh, so each uh, they all behave really differently, both on the strategic layer and and in battles. Uh, so the Skaven have their own form of corruption, and the more you corrupt the land, the more public disorder spreads. So it's bad for Skaven actually. Like if Skaven <laughs> is just a chaotic, self-destructive society, it's just what they are. Yeah, they're sort of yeah, they're like sort of Machiavellian rat communists <laughs> like they, uh, they'll stab each other like in the back they'll eat each other it's it, you know it's, it's a rat world out there and the more you corrupt a province when you go into battle you can just start summoning units up from underground it's the best anywhere the- on the battlefield <laughs> so um i'm sitting like at the bottom of this enormous hill and our forces are evenly matched but they've got the elevation advantage and they're high elves they're fucking amazing at shooting so they're bringing their these <laughs> the high elves and they're high up <laughs> yeah, i know what the hell am i supposed to do uh, so all these elite archers kind of lining up on this ridge like firing loads of stuff down into my 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 rat man and i've got millions of rat men Skaven, you get to wield vast armies because you're a horde. Um, but whenever one gets set and starts fighting or shooting, I just like click on it and then go, okay, there are rats there now. And you see <laughs> all this earth explode and like a horde of tiny, quite shit rats <laughs> swarm the archers and stop them from firing. Like, it's oh the, no, there's shit rats here now. <laughs> it's such a good feel. Like, I mean, yeah. like, it's interesting. That one mechanic means I auto resolve less, which mm. is again in a Total War thing that they needed to kind of encourage players not to do but give you a good reason not to do it can't be just to force you to play the battles it has to be Mm. you want to play them and one of the reasons is in a close battle correctly using that ability feels amazing yeah because you end up with these because it feels and the great thing is you know and i love the setting it feels like it's such a scaveny thing to happen Mm. like i've had um there was a great um i I was playing as Clan Moors. Um, there's a great like there's a imperial there's an empire rogue army. So these are interesting things. So rogue armies are like 
they're not factions, they're not small factions, they're just one army, one massive army that walks around doing its own thing. Um, and they have, they're all themed, so that, and there's no faction restrictions. So they'll be themed around like a high concept, and then the army is designed by, by Creative Assembly to, you know, fill a particular fantasy. So this Empire one are pirates, basically. Like, they're kind of like Imperial soldiers that have just gone rogue and just wandered off to the far side of the world to go for privateering. And they have a mixture of Imperial units and cannons and, and sort of outrider cavalry and things like that. And early on, I found as Skaven, outrider cavalry are quite hard to deal with because Skaven don't have a lot of fast units initially. Like, mm. that, they are fast for infantry, but they can't catch a horse. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, and um, and also there are loads of cannons and stuff and setting up so that like I'd hide my army and, and the extent of my army in trees and in the tree line, kind of lure this Imperial army down to the valley and then have at the same time as like the full bulk of my kind of rat horde kind of reveals itself and hits their front line. Rats start bursting out of the ground and stopping their and and killing their cannon crews so that they they can't do anything there. And then you know it's a forty five second cooldown before you can do it again. But then you can use it to obviously like pincer people and things like that. Mm. But also to like stop retreats so that like you know those outrider cavalry that are skirmishing so they'll run up and shoot and then run back again. They they'll often wait to run away until the moment you're like infantry catch them. So they'll sort of they'll stay and shoot until the moment you, you're about to catch them and then they'll start to run and they're on horses so you'll never catch them unless a load of rats the ship rats <laughs> just come out of the ground at that point and then they're surrounded they're pinted on both sides yeah. and the best thing about it is it's super fun to do but also it really feels like that's that's what it is like to die to Skaven right <laughs> like there's just mm. more rats and they keep coming out of the fucking ground even to the point that they've recorded voice lines for like the high elves and the humans and things. So they shout that basically like there are <laughs> rats, rats everywhere. <laughs> like, Shitty rats right out of the ground. <laughs> it's, it, it, it does way more to tie your decisions on the strategic layer into the battles as well. So um, the number of times you get to do that is tied to the percentage of corruption in the region in which you're fighting. Uh, and you can do loads of stuff to spread corruption. Like your heroes, you can basically they've got their own skill trees and you can just have them specialize and just, barfing everywhere or whatever is they <laughs> specialty is I'm just constantly vomiting <laughs> what's that rat doing here just vomiting endlessly into this river for no reason um, and if he does it enough and you get up to like 70% corruption then you can summon like six shit rat units out of the, out of the ground wherever yeah. you want to it's also tied to the food mechanic which is a Skaven specific oh, yeah. thing because food Skaven have like a food bar which is like a percentage basically mm. and if it's low then you're in real fucking trouble and if it's high up then your growth is increased mm. however when any battle begins you can buy new charges of or additional charges of menace below uh, yeah. for like three food ago so um, I'm hitting I'm, I'm sitting like 110 food at the moment like we're Fat little rat people. Mm. Um, also, Skaven can eat the armies that they just defeated <laughs> in order to replenish their own troops. But that, um, <clears throat> but that means because basically, because the reason for that is that Skaven won't do anything if there's no food on offer. So if you offer food, more Skaven will be available mm. to burst out of the ground. Um, and that's a really nice mechanic as well because it means that you're. It's not. It's not like it's not the slow progress progress of corruption. It means that if you've got loads of food, you can afford to go do a risky play overseas mm. and just buy a whole load of charges of menace below when you get there yeah because you know you you will then and then you can and skaven can also invest food when they capture a city <clears throat> to automatically get that city at a higher level 
And that is helpful because of the other rad. We could just sort of the Weiss gave on a rad hour, but um, the other amazing Skaven mechanic is no one else can see their cities. Yeah. So Skaven <laughs> cities look like ruins. Like, so they look like cities nobody owns <laughs> until you send a hero there to do the scout action, at which point it reveals if it's a Skaven city or not. Because Skaven, they don't build anything. They Well, they do, but they build it underground and yeah. on the surface, all you see is a ruin. Um, so if you if you sack if if the air well, if your opponent sees you sack a city and raise it they don't know if you've raised it or <laughs> taken it <laughs> and if you rate if you take it you can invest food if you have a surplus of food automatically get that city to like level two or three rather than have to build it up and every single skaven building generates income which is unusual that i think they're the only race that does that which means that Skaven have this mechanic which is very unlike traditional Total War and very unlike most of the factions where you can almost get value out of like a quick burn city. So you wreck a city in enemy territory, you turn it into a pretty, you invest food and turn it into like quite a high level Skaven city straight away. You throw up some buildings, you get like three turns worth of construction, income and um, unit production and stuff out of it. And then you just move on. And if they find it and destroy it, it doesn't matter because it's not the core of your network. Yeah, it's going to make money for you forever if they never actually Yeah, and also it. they have to deal with it. Like, yeah. at some point they have to deal with it, but you can ignore it forever then. Mm. And it's such a... It feels really neat. Like, um, I just wiped out my first High Elf faction on my Skaven campaign mm. because they went to fight some lizard men, <clears throat> And I started a different... I got one of the other Skaven clans to start a war with the same lizard men. So the Lizardmen were fighting on two fronts. The High Elves were sieging the Lizardman capital city. And then um, the Lizardmen, in retaliation, took the penultimate High Elf city. And the final High Elf city was on an island. And so while the Lizardmen were distracted by this... Well, the Lizardmen were distracted killing the Skaven that I wanted them to kill. Because I wanted to take that sca- those Skaven stuffs later. I put my army on a boat, sailed to the High Elf homeland sacked that city, took it away, and then the, the one surviving High Elf army just died of attrition in the Lizardman jungle, and their entire civilization was gone. And it was like, hey! And it was like, but it was extremely rats, right? Yeah. It was like, you know, there was no kind of grand confrontation. It was just like, I just took their undefended homeland because mm. they didn't expect a rat uprising from nowhere and then back home again. They could travel in the underways as well, so they can go pretty much where they want unless they're intercepted. Yeah. They're amazing. Uh, I love all the factions I've played with so far, actually. Apart from, I mean, the high elves are a bit more conventional. Um, apart from when it comes to diplomacy, which is still one of the weaker aspects of the game, I think. But you know, I think fighting fight. against high elves is more interesting. Yeah, um, it's fun to fight them. They're, so they're, is, they're fun to kill. <laughs> their key mechanic is really interesting because hmm. it's the martial prowess buff. So if they um, if their units are at full strength at the beginning of a fight they're quite substantially better mm. throughout the fight. And that reflects the fact that like high elves prefer to fight if they've had some time yeah. to like polish the armor and like <laughs> get ready. Um, which means that if you have like really good Skaven assassins, for example, that specialize in um, assaulting yeah. units, units. Mm. you can damage them before the fight and then they don't get there. Like basically just some Skaven go into the camp and like just tip things over. <laughs> and the elves are very upset by this <laughs> and then they aren't, aren't quite into it as much. My well, favorite chalice is lying askance. <laughs> I just the battle is lost. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, and um, that means uh, that's you know it's a cool mechanic. And but from a high off player point of view, it means that you spend you know you want to 
it encourages you to swap units in and out mm. and to like um merge units up to merge units and add noblemen to your armies because they add re- unit replacement oh, things, you know what yeah. i mean to, you know yeah. it's supposed to you fight in quite an elegant way where you like mm. you perfect you create a perfect force and then you win and then you retreat that force out and you swap it out for another fresh mm. fresh one you don't mm. go on a slog um but that's actually more fun to subvert than it is to play with, I think. Mm. Like, it's more fun to be just fucking up their stuff and they're like, ah! <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, they're fantastic. I, I managed to uh, I managed to bankrupt my Lizardman empire um, because uh, Lizardman gets perform rights. In fact, a, lot, uh, a few of the factions do. Um, one of the Lizardmen rights summons a massive army of feral dinosaurs at your capital city. You just you press a button and they chant at the sun, and then suddenly there are feral dinosaurs everywhere, um, which means you can barely control them in combat. They just they just go, uh, and they're made up of carnosaurs, which are T Rexes, and uh, stegodons, which are stegosauruses, with and sometimes crystals mounted on their backs that they use to fire lasers. At enemies, uh, lizardmen are the best. Um, lizardmen are great. Yeah. Uh, so yes, yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> apparently these feral dinosaurs need to be paid like everyone else. <laughs> Like they, they've unionized or something. Uh, Fair, but we're not after. <laughs> uh, but they, 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 they've got to get paid for, for their business. So their, their gold upkeep is substantial. Um, and I didn't really like think this through when I summoned them because it was a desperate defense against chaos. Um, chaos mortals were coming into my territory, which is a thing that happens when you activate one of the big rights to try and affect the vortex. And I was completely unprepared for the number of them. So I summoned an army of feral dinosaurs to take care of the problem. And they immediately wiped out my entire gold reserve. They were just like, well, we'll, ta- we'll, we'll, you, we'll save your ass. But only if you pay us, said the dinosaurs. That are, <laughs> like the iron uh, bank. Ba- barely house-trained. Like, just coming from the, the jungles, from the wilds, to, you know, perform uh, the whims of the giant magical frog that leads them. Yeah. Uh, but they were very effective. It was amazing. I'd, I'd go into watch the, to those matches just to watch them do stuff because they <laughs> they look amazing mm. you know, on the battlefield. They're so much fun. Uh, yeah. Oh my god. It's it's they've done a brilliant job. I, I, I'm so happy that they've kind of they've streamlined the Total War formula. They've got got these amazing armies that feel as though it feels like a different Total War game every time you play a different campaign. Like they've really done a good job of focusing in on making each one different on every layer, both the strategy layer and the battle mm. layer. Awesome. Streamline is my favourite word to hear in respect to a sequel. Like that's. <laughs> I know not everyone feels this way, but um, uh, usually if I come to a series late, the, the problem is it's become so bloated now that I can't get into it. It's just like, oh, I've got to learn everything from the previous game and also everything they've added. Mm. And I've talked about this problem with XCOM recently, um, which is not a series I came to late. Well, came to it with the remakes, but um, the remakes I've been in, uh, I've played all of them. But yeah, I just, I'm always desperate for game designers. Just just cut some stuff out. Just make mm. it work better. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and it's only added a lot to Total War. Like, rights and stuff are completely new. Yeah. I think it explains itself way better. The like, UI is better. I think, I think the UI is a lot better. Also, the tooltips are better. Like, they've always had millions of tooltips in Total War, but I think they explain things so clearly. And the resource systems feel way clearer to me than they have. Yeah, the, the tutorials... Um, I found out actually, uh, so this is a dumb thing in that I kind of wanted to do the full new player experience because I was playing the game, the full game for the first time. But I had the weird experience of someone who literally wrote a guide for this game, <laughs> having to sit through quite a, quite a long in-depth tutorial the first time I played. And I did start to get frustrated, but I, I did ask for this. Like I did a for the new player experience. It's like, I really shouldn't have clicked, clicked that. But, um, but yeah, really just handhold you through like the basics of total war yeah and i think it has i think it's good that it does that and it's quite clear about what the level of new player experience you're getting like it literally says point the camera at this then it zooms in and explains something then it says oh point the camera over here now and it explains that it does that in the battles as well so i think 
I think that's necessary for you know people to understand the basics of it. Mm. Um, yeah. I want to say I'll play this one, but I have said that about every Total War for the last ten years. <laughs> like, oh, this is the one I'm going to play. I think. I think this is this is the one to do. Though. Yeah, um, I would agree with I would, that. Um, like it is. Super yeah, what else am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I mean, it's so much fun just to go in. They've got loads of like narrative battles that you play, not even in any campaign. Just if you want to play around the units and oh, see right. some cool maps, they've got a whole series. They've got like, I think two for each faction that you can mm. do, and that's not even a skirmish campaign or anything. It's just independent got their own voice acting got their own setup and stuff yeah did you do the um the skaven right where you get the essentially walking nuke oh no <laughs> it's so <laughs> it good. Sounds good so um you get one of the rights so like <clears throat> i think it's, it's called the right of doom but doom is in all caps like three exclamation marks um because skaven things and you get a a unique engineer hero um who only has one ability on the world map and it always succeeds and it always kills him where he just walks into any enemy city and it basically creates an earthquake but the idea is he just sets off like a kind of warpstone nuke in the middle of the city oh, wow. <laughs> and like um and it collapses all of the walls and like all of the buildings oh my goodness like, it damages all the buildings in it and it does 90 oh, percent damage to every wall so you doing that to the high elf capital city <laughs> i did it to a lizard man capital city it's the best feeling because i had queek who's mine oh leader, yeah like queek yeah. like ready to show up with two mm. armies but like obviously, you know, fortified lizardman capital. The uh, their army was elsewhere because mm. I'd been a dick somewhere else. Skaven's just being a dick, and I think that's one of the reasons it's so much fun. Actually, is like because the playstyle for Skaven is about subverting total war norms, like ignoring territory and just fighting two people at once, and then fighting, then swapping yeah. to get them to fight each other and that kind of thing. It feels like you're being a twat, and actually, given that total war's problems sometimes stem from it being very stolid and kind of one territory then capture the next territory then capture the next yeah, territory definitely. playing in a way that's just chaos mm. pun not intended is is like genuinely great but having this thing of like keeping my army back and then just sending in this one rat and then just watching as like the walls of the city kind of like crumble as he just detonates this underground explosion and just sort of sinks part of the city oh, and then the rat strike is like again it's just it's pure Warhammer fantasy basically it's, it's it's really nice. nice. It does such a good job. Like when you defend a Skaven city, it's a massive. You fight in a giant underground cavern, and mm. behind you, you see all the Skaven kind of warrens and like little kind of structures <laughs> they've built. And you know, they've still got normal castle siege battles. But the fact they've gone to the lengths to actually create a Skaven city underground and that has its own map that you defend differently. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. really really cool. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad that this exists. It's such mm. a it's, uh, uh, it's an amazing fit of license to you know, format. But I, I love the it almost didn't have to be this good at it of actually making it this kind of accessible. Yeah, I mean I do you think and you know, do you think it's the best total war game they made? Mm. Like and, and the fantasy setting really helps. Yeah, like definitely. it really helps them because they don't they're not limited to the structures of history. Because mm. they could handle that certainly, but this allows them to abstract things that possibly needed abstracting and you don't mind because it's magic. Right. It's, it's fun to see little uh, things that, you know, mechanics that have worked in previous Total Wars really, really well and see them kind of like transposed into this setting. So Black Arcs can launch bombardments. Into, uh, Black Ark is basically a floating boat that is a city for the Dark Elves. They can have their own buildings on them and stuff, can't they, I think? Mm-hmm. Um, and It's a mobile city. It's a mobile it? city, which is, you know, no other faction can do that. Uh, but if you're fighting near one, then you can, there's like a button that you press to 
calling the bombardment, which is an artillery strike from off the map <laughs> in a Total War game, uh, which they did before for Fall of the Samurai. Um, so, and it's, it works exactly the same way, and it was super, super fun then. But I think, like, it, it, if they go too far in that direction, it annoys their kind of the fans of the historical Total War games, where it yeah. feels a little bit too gamey sometimes, and they, and those fans really love the historical ac- accuracy angle of it. <laughs> so this is obviously like the shackles are off, and okay, we can just have giant magical laser beams everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, it feels so good. And it's stuff like, um, it allows them to focus a little bit on the rules of things as well without worrying about the how. Mm. So, like, there's a really nice mechanic. And it's pure game mechanic, really. It's not really, like, it is themey, but only to the extent they obviously wanted to give you this ability. Where there's a Skaven um, army ability that's only available if you perform certain right, and it's only for a certain number of turns, uh, which allows you to pull this great big column of warp stone, which is the thing that's Skaven, like, out of the ground Mm. uh, in an area, quite a big area of the battlefield. And then every Skaven unit near it, regardless of what it is, gains um, quite a lot of anti-armor, which is very gamey, but it feels amazing mm. because Skaven are very attritional. That You have these huge mobs of quite shit rats, right? You have big mobs of shit rats, and they're coming out the ground, they're coming out the walls, they're everywhere, but they're shit. And then you drop this thing down, and suddenly they all get a lot scarier, particularly something like High Elves, where they depend oh, yeah. on their armor quite a lot. And it feels really, really good to do. And it looks cool. A big pink rock comes out of the ground. <laughs> but um, it's something that they could never... Even though it's mechanically interesting and it encourages you to set up interesting traps, you know, you want to... Cre- when you've got that ability and you know you've got that ability, you want to create the big, messy, hairball front line <laughs> where you've got loads of units compacted into a tiny place, even if that suits the defenders, because you know you can deploy the big rock and suddenly gain that advantage. Um, that is something that you can't do in a traditional Total War because it requires it just there's no there's no way of explaining the fantasy of it yeah. really like at all like a Roman puts a flag down and now everyone has sharper swords like it doesn't work <laughs> whereas in this setting you can just totally do that and it's perfect I just realised what the um, uh, the sort of Skaven summoning type thing reminds me of and it's um, the Necrons in Dark Crusade um, mm, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, where uh, they have loads of mechanics about like uh, resurrection and stuff but uh, their sort of backstory is like they don't really go to planets they just already are there yeah. <laughs> they were what was there you know millions and millions of years ago and so in particular they're like one of their units is like they're robot skeletons but these particular units are robot skeletons with flesh hanging off them and they have an extra like sort of fear advantage where people are terrified of them um, and those ones, instead of just pumping them out of like a factory, uh, you can just create them wherever you want them because they're already there. <laughs> They've just been lying there for millions of years. <laughs> and so if you want to be over there, well, there are some over there. So just tell those ones to get up. <laughs> Yeah, it, uh, they've done a nice job with the presentation of that stuff as well, so mm. it, it feels right. Yeah, like, it I remember great. when I played quite an early build of the game. So, like, much as I can say this, like, when I played the game, um, Skaven didn't have textures. <laughs> so it's, been nice, <laughs> it's been nice to do, um, to see how that's all supposed to look. And a lot of the heroes didn't have animations yet, so there was a lot mm. of just, like, um, like grey seers. Like just sort of like, um, no, they, were, they were in this sort of, like, hunched battle pose, but they would then surf. Like, <laughs> um but um, so I, I, you know, I'd sort of understood the game, but without having the sense of impact. And they've done a really nice job of like mm. selling that moment, like when it's things like music as well, like when the um, when the burrow emerges, you get this kind of like, <laughs> 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 
and other noises. And shit, there's loads of rats. Those are the three traditional side effects. Yeah, the UI is brilliant for that as well because it shows you the kind of eruption point and then where the unit will go to. Yeah. And you can kind of, it's, it just makes complete sense when you're doing it. And yeah, it's, it, you just nailed it really. Yeah, the eruption point itself can be used to knock back enemies as well. Oh, that's if you put the advice. eruption point underneath them, because your mouse so you is on the back. Your mouse is where the unit will be. Yeah. But slightly behind your mouse is where the the rats will come out. Behind your mouse is where the rats come out. <laughs> but there's like a, a weird. of life. <laughs> <laughs> there's a big long uh, line of enemy units. Then you disrupt one, then charge them into the next. Yeah. The neighbors maybe. It's the, yeah um, yeah. Dark elves are cool too. We didn't mention them. They're good. Yeah, I've not played much of them yet. Um, I, I was like the least. I checked all their starting positions. The starting position basically tells you a lot about how exciting a campaign is going to turn out to be. <laughs> and um, Queek's ca- uh, starting position is amazing. It's so much fun because you're. Um, there's a tiny high off unit uh, island nearby that's sending. Constant yeah, those are the ones I fucked over. Yeah, yeah, I fucked them over real bad. Yeah, they, they expose themselves every time they send an army over. So you're just kind of playing this waiting game. Yeah, um, well, that's exactly what happened because yeah. I had, had somehow managed to set off a war between them and the lizard men nearby. Oh yeah, they're a problem as well. Yeah. yeah, and then this huge high off army went sailing out of of that island and was going straight for me. And I was mm. like, okay, well, get back to base and wait. And it went past me to the lizard man <laughs> capital, and yes. that's why I was like, well, fuck this. Yeah, I'm having that island. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, then they okay. uh, they they died of malaria, presumably. There are loads of Skaven to the east of that position. It's a really they're good all campaign. dead now. Oh, they're yeah. all dead you now. You just chew through them. It's so much good. So no, I mean, fun. I didn't chew through them. Oh, Crocgar right. chewed through them. The and, desert man. Yeah, and then made peace. <laughs> with sounds me. like a lizard man. <laughs> yeah, and then made peace with me. So I was like, "Yep, that's cool for later." Wow. Problem solved. That <laughs> yeah, problem exactly. solved itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I nuked a different lizard man city, but oh, Crocgar no. was okay with that. So they're, you're Skaven, but there are enemy Skaven as well. Yeah. Well, that you can so so one thing about the Warhammer, the way Total War Warhammer works is, um, so believe it or not, it's not easy for everyone to be friends with everybody else in the Warhammer universe. Unlike real history, <laughs> there are pretty massive obstacles to diplomacy between certain factions. Um, it's more loose than you think in some ways. Like you can have a conversation with the lizard men near Skaven, even though they hate each other. But like diplomacy is a much more specific thing in Total Warhammer generally, like. Mm. In in a in Rome, for example, you could try and pursue a meaningful diplomatic relationship with every faction you encountered. It's not really the point of the game. Total War is always going to be a war game first. I think it's not Civ, but you know you could try that. Whereas in Warhammer, like because of the setting, you know, certain factions aren't going to like each other. So um, and and Skaven particularly kind of don't want to be friends with everybody because if you're friends with someone, you can tell which one of their ruins are cities. Mm. <laughs> so you may only make alliances with other Skaven, really, and even then probably only to dick them over because you do have like a like a reliability rating which tells people other people how you know uh, other factions are more likely to make deals with you if you are very reliable and you stick yeah. you don't break your pact skaven don't give a fuck about that at all because once all the other skaven are gone or subsumed they're never making alliances with anybody else anyway <laughs> because everybody hates them so like you basically just make alliances with the skaven screw over all the other skaven become the biggest skaven <laughs> and then you never click diplomacy again because <laughs> what's it for it's really? totally designed for that as well that's why they have all those money producing buildings because they they're not a trading not a trading people so trade is a huge source of income obviously that's denied to them but the way the design pans out is that actually you get to build these money making structures in all of your cities and that's Mm. how you counter it basically or and they're really good at raiding so they're um like your armies can go into stances and if you go into raiding stances you can steal stuff from the territory you're in so 
you know, including your own territory. Yeah, including if you're really desperate or for some <laughs> weird reason you want to do that. But Skaven are really good at doing that because they can generate food as well as gold, and uh, you can put loads of points into heroes, making them better. I was going to talk for hours about this game. It's, <laughs> it's, yeah. it, it's, it's, it is great though. It is great. There's so many nice mechanics like high elves. Um, high elves gain line of sight from trade agreements. <laughs> and it's yeah. because they have a really good it's very nice. elegant spy network mm. so <laughs> they just make a trade agreement with you they don't mention this but with that comes a certain <laughs> amount they know everything yeah, about yeah, your civilization yeah. now yeah. and they also gain a resource called influence which allows them to basically force dipl- diplomacy through like mm. you say like well basically they, you can go along and say well we would like to set up a trading outpost with your people and you go no because I know that's just a branch of your spy network you don't need the money you're high elves and, and she's actually go, quite realistic yeah and they go we know but you're gonna do it anyway because we're high elves and then they go oh okay and uh, then, oh, yeah, that's, like, a, that's really cool that's what it seems because the high elves don't need trade really yeah. like they're so wealthy trade is a way of finding out what everyone else is doing mm. which is yeah this, that's this, a cool idea there's lots of really neat little kind of mechanics like that mm. um, yeah I could bang on about it as well like um, the, the dark elves have a, a big issue with loyalty like you have individual general loyalty now and if that drops too low they can break off and create splinter factions which isn't oh, yeah. a problem for most so for the more kind of like orderly hmm. that's, um, a, that's a Rome 2 thing but it's, it's amazing how they've like taken picked up little ideas from mm. other Total Wars and then made that a Dark Elf thing which is kind of cool. it's a Dark Elf the Skaven thing mm. but like the Dark Elves really need to worry about it because they're constantly fucking each other over because mm. they're Dark Elves they're, they're, they're all hedonism bot and like <laughs> <laughs> And that's and there's only a finite number of grapes. That's the way. <laughs> that's the way I would explain dark elf politics. <laughs> um, and like and so and managing that's really interesting because if um, you can have huge penalties if at any point huge loyalty penalties as Malekith, if at any point any of your other generals is higher level than Malekith. Mm. So, because they all level up through battle and stuff, but that means if you have like a favorite general <laughs> and he's not you, yeah. you have to get him killed. Can you assassinate him? God, this is so Rome. Just without ever having played Rome Total War, just yeah. knowing some Roman history. <laughs> like, yeah, but it's having really- a general who's more popular than you are is fucking yeah. dangerous. Yeah. This, this is Rome too. They've just transposed it onto Dark Hells. Like, it's a perfect fit, but yeah. it's, they've... they've it's, it's cool to watch that series. And like, uh, yeah, and then um, yeah, and like loyalty um, goes down if the general's bored. <laughs> so a really good idea is to send one of them. Mm. Like as soon as generals start to get quite high level, just send them to the other side of the world to raid and pillage. <laughs> this and- is so Rome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it, yeah, it, yeah, really like. But but even in Rome, because of the stodginess of the other systems, it, it didn't quite come to yeah, life never in quite this works. way. Like, yeah, never quite worked. Whereas I do think it, it does. Like Dark House, uh, it was a toss up between Dark House and Skaven for me for this first campaign. Yeah. But, um, but Skaven was the, is the one that's the most different, I think, mm. to, to what previous Total Wars have done. So yeah, and I can't wait to play more. I, yeah, I think it's it's great. It's good. It's good. Uh, I can't wait. <laughs> I don't, this is surely going to break the game, but they're going to release a patch uh, at some point that will unite Total War Warhammer One and Warham, Total War Warhammer Two. Right. It's just to somehow glue the maps together and put all of the factions in at the same time. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Just apply a game glue. <laughs> yeah, and is I mean, it's I nuts. Can't wait for that. I can't understand how that will work in my brain. <laughs> so <laughs> it disables, it will disable the Vortex campaign. Yeah, so it's You'll just basically get, at the moment you click new campaign, you just get taken through to what is the basically the hub page for the Vortex campaign. Mm. A little bit like what happened with Total Warhammer 1, you'll get, it'll split between right. Vortex campaign and Grand Map, yeah, whatever they're okay. calling it. Yeah. 
And then, because you can kind of see it now, if you zoom out all the way back on the diplomacy map, I think, specifically, mm. or even just the world map, you can see it's sort of like out to the east. It's just a sort of fog of ward blob. And that's where Total Warhammer 1 is, yes. basically. <laughs> yes. And then, because they did make some some sort of engine changes and things. New, it, it's, it's a slightly better looking game than Total Warhammer 1, mm. but it's the same assets. So they will just, it's like shaders and, and like post-processing stuff. Mm. So it can just, be applied to the first game and then yeah and then it'll just be pick a faction start somewhere in the world and welcome to probably the biggest total war yeah they've made really, until they, until they finish the trilogy yeah i'd be interested to see how that works out because um in stuff like uh galsiv um you can have uh, i can't remember how many races there are in that but like 10 say uh, and you can have them all in the same game if you like um but I'm always wary of doing it because what tends to happen is that one of them gets super powerful um, by eating the others. <laughs> and by the time you encounter that one, you just have no hope. It's just, you're just boned. Um, whereas it would, the campaign I'd like to play is like, I have three or four people who I need to worry about. I try and be the best out of those three and four. I conquer those. And then after that, after I've conquered that, then I meet the other people who conquered their three or four or whatever. And then, um, or even just, I keep meeting the, the new races one after the other. And um, you want a kind of uh, Premier League pools, uh, FA Cup pool yeah, system like, where everyone defeats each other, and then you get go to the semi-finals. Yeah, it feels like with so much, like for want of a better word, content, <laughs> like so many different factions, all who work different ways and who are interestingly different to fight against. You don't want them to all kill each other off before you get there. You mm. kind of want to have an interesting experience with each of them. But having them all in one big free-for-all is, is chaotic and um, might not be the best way to go. One of the things that helps with that a little bit is, so even even the big factions tend not to be one faction at the beginning of any given campaign. So something like the Empire yeah, is made up of all of its constituent parts, basically. Mm. And if you are playing as the Empire, your first job is to unify the Empire, whether that's politically or militarily or something like that. Same as there being lots of different Skaven clans. So you have a chance to fight everybody in different proportions. And also people are quite spread out. So there's like, there are isolated dwarven civilizations in the far west, even though the bulk of the dwarven characters are in, in the old world. So like, it you know, you, I think it, you don't just have that thing of like, well, the dwarves are gone. We're never going to see them in my campaign. They were dead by the time I got there. You will, I think you'd probably encounter everybody on the way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's still a danger of like, it coming down to a slug match between the two giant empires that are left and the scraps of everybody else. I can't wait to see what happens there. I kind of love that chaos, um, <laughs> especially as it's like a free update and like Total Warhammer 2 is easily large enough to justify this yeah. title. It's already its own. Yeah, in a way, game. by releasing it this way, they're sort it's of ensuring that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, yeah, three games knitted together into yeah. one. Blimey. Warhammer mega game. It's very exciting. It's nice. It's uh, and it's just nice that like that they've done such a good job with that license. Mm. Like that's you know they've a license that has been mistreated, one might say, in <laughs> other by other studios. Yeah, um, but also, not, not fully realised that's mistreated is wrong. But yeah, yeah, like um, and also specifically like given that the tabletop game has moved on from that setting, yeah. this feels like it's this feels like its truest realization in a format where the things that were problems for the tabletop game are successes for mm. the video game. Yeah. So the fact that it's a fully realized world where you can't really add anything because every square inch of this place is populated with detailed factions and histories is brilliant for a strategy game because by the time they get around to realizing that entire world map, it will be like an immense feat of just detailed strategy 
design where you know you can start any point in the world and, and work through hopefully to everything else mm. um which was a nightmare for a game that needed to change constantly yeah i mean it's just a game that was struggling and, and was rebooted as a consequence but it's really nice for a mm. for a video game yeah i've no idea how they'd realize the infinite magical mortal realms that exist in aos yeah well i think aos it was age of sigma which came after mm. warhammer fantasy which that's, that's current warhammer fantasy yeah the current equivalent one. yeah, yeah. Um, is a great fit for a miniatures game. Mm. In fact, the only thing that makes me sad about Total War is that the community is really against Age of Sigma. Like, really? Yeah, it makes me sad. It kind of makes sense, though. I mean, it's a nostalgic exercise yeah, in like, some ways. The, and not in a particularly detailed way, but you see it a lot on like, Total War Reddit and stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of kickback against Age of Sigma. It's like, we're the real Warhammer, not like the yeah. shit stuff that Games Workshop are doing now, which is, makes me sad because both are good. <laughs> and it's really nice that, like, you know... Yeah, you can like two things. Yeah, particularly because, you know... It's this, it's made by a pool of people that are all kind of share similar interests, right? Like the boundaries between the mm. sorts of people making Total War games at Creative Assembly and the sorts of people making Warhammer at Games Workshop are pretty narrow. <laughs> Lots of British designers going north and south, up and down England. Well, uh, I mean, you know, like the lead designer of Total War is Total War Warhammer 2 is ex-Future Publishing. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but yeah, we should, uh, we should play more Total War, basically. Should we do questions? Yes, we should definitely do some questions from the internet. Good. We don't have a lot of questions this week because we surprised everybody by recording on a Monday. We did. Which we might do more often mm. because it's convenient for us. But it does mean get those questions in. Get some, get some details on that at the end of the podcast. But nonetheless, get them in so that we don't not have questions. As is happening <laughs> right now. And we can stretch it out as long as we like, though. Watch our podcasting <laughs> skills Well, in action. My ability to read might be impaired by the fact that we're drinking whiskey and ginger wine. Thanks to Tony Ellis for the ginger wine. Former to my PC party. Gamer production editor, Tony Ellis's suggestion, which is delicious, of, what would, is it Jim Beam we're drinking? Yep. Jim yeah. Beam and Stones. Ginger original. wine, green, which is falling over a little bit there, Tom. Green ginger wine. Mm. It's in a green bottle, so I can't tell if it truly is green. It's highly drinkable, despite being essentially... A whiskey and Coke, where the Coke is 13% ginger wine. <laughs> Coke is like an incredibly strong wine. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, uh, only Tom Francis and I are drinking this. So this is an interesting blind trial for yeah, I, how questions on, go. I'm straight Jim Beam. <laughs> so yeah. and Tom is sobering up on the <laughs> pure whiskey. <laughs> Good. Okay, our first question comes from, well, our first two questions indeed, come from Zed Fang on Twitter, who writes... In a game, how much time is it okay to expect a player to spend trying to defeat a hard but compulsory boss? Can a game be just too hard? For me, very, very little. <laughs> I think this is definitely relevant to the Cuphead discussion where, um, you know, Mark Brown was saying, like, GIF would tell you whether you like Cuphead or not, because it's actually, like, mind-blowing to me that there are people who look at that GIF and think, oh, yeah, I want to play this game. <laughs> to mm. me, that GIF was like, oh, my God, don't ever play this game. Uh, or, I mean, the only the only way I can look at that GIF and think this would appeal to some people is if they look at that GIF and think, oh, this idiot, I could do this way better. I think um, anyone who's been watching our Bloodborne series <laughs> would understand exactly how long it's okay to expect people to try and kill a yeah. hard but non-compulsory bros. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to kill the bros. Death to bros, Tom. Death to bros. <laughs> um do you guys, is this just me, or do you hear Bross as the name of the group? 
there was like a group called Bros, and I guess it was supposed to be pronounced Bros, maybe, but I just right. always pronounce it Bros. I always think of it as like uh, I used to read Mario Bros as Bros. <laughs> yeah, I so did I. Yeah. So uh, that's uh, that's what I still think of bros. People pronounce it brothers. So does anyone say Mario Bros? I I, I still don't. <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. Had the bros all the way. <laughs> it's it's bros all the way down. But that's not what this is about. No point having a bros fight about oh, it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think there's a third way, Tom. From uh, I think there's uh, a type of person who knows that the euphoria and the kind of the the hit you get from beating a hard challenge like that is somehow worth the struggle and that the, the moment of sheer joy and victory uh, is 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 worth it worth chasing i think this is the reason it does work in souls games mm. is because once you've beaten that boss it's dead now forever mm. like it's a real it's not like a, an arcade game it's not like a cuphead or a karuga or something where yeah beating true. your boss is just one step on the stage of doing the whole game like, you can bash your head against a compulsory Dark Souls boss for a long time, but when you beat it, that's real progress made, mm-hmm. right? Like, you've you've really done something. It feels like a huge moment, and the game sells it to you so well. Like, it makes it feel incredible, and it doesn't even just directly reward you with good stuff. It's just the way that they explode, and then it rains blood, and it says, <laughs> enemy vanquished, and you just, you're just crying. So, <laughs> like, yes, so I, I don't know it. if this is actually a thing that I uncovered, or if someone already knows about this, but um, when I was editing the most recent Bloodborne video, mm. um, I sped up our farming session by six times, including the sound, in-game sound. Yeah. And what I discovered is when the big enemies die, they make a really satisfying noise, like a helium balloon popping. Like mm-hmm. it's like a pop, and it's really gratifying when they die. And in in normal speed Bloodborne, you hear that as a kind of like <laughs> when they die. But sped up six times, it's just this kind of like almost like Mario style kind of like <laughs> pop. And I think that might be how they did that. Maybe that's I it. think they might have slowed down extremely satisfying sounds. <laughs> By 600 times or something. Wow. That's kind of genius. It is kind of genius. Seriously, watch the beginning of the Bloodborne episode just for that. Just for... Because <laughs> suddenly, when you speed it up, it's like the most satisfying hammer game ever. Where it's just like a man with a big hammer going bash, 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 bing. Getting lots of points for it. It's <laughs> oh, really man. good. No, that's so true. Maybe like the pacing of the game is kind of revealed when you speed it up. It's almost like... Yeah, yeah, it's like any yeah, all oh, Dark Souls is, is any other video game. It's just it's just Diablo. Extremely slow. <laughs> yeah, Diablo. Awesome. Uh, I'm I love our hammer at the moment. Like we're Kirk Hammer. We're we're, we're stuck with Kirk Hammer for um, a long period because it's unusual to use Kirk Hammer for this long, but it's it's so satisfying to just mallet a thing very slowly. <laughs> I was trying to think, um, what is the longest I've spent on a boss without hating it? Hmm. Like, is there any boss that I've spent a long time on? And of course, the answer is Spelunky. <laughs> um, because Olmec is a boss that will sort of throw you for a few loops. Like, the, it takes a, it's a rare run that you get to it if you're hmm. just starting out. And then when you do get to it, it's a totally different kind of challenge to the rest of the game. So you will die to it a few times and then you'll figure it out. Um, and there's kind of an exploit to it you can just kind of bypass the boss fight if you have enough bombs Um, and it's weird because that is the answer to the question that is you know if you ask me what's the what's the longest I've ever spent on a boss fight without hating the boss fight it's that and then also there's a hell boss fight which is different again Um, and it's difficult but I completed it and didn't hate it at the end I was 
uh, enjoyed the whole thing. But they're both kind of bad. <laughs> like, Olmec is just, it's such a kind of technical thing. It's just, do you know the rule? If you know the rule, you can just solve it. If you don't know the rule, you can't solve it. There is a slightly more skill-based way of solving it if you don't have enough bombs, but it's not really worth doing if you do have enough bombs. And it's so just design-wise, it's just very flabby. There's just a lot of, like, um, doesn't end up being that interesting. And then the hell one, uh, I got to it twice and I beat it on my second time. So as a boss fight, it wasn't that challenging. Um, it is kind of cool. I like it as a, as a just fun bit of design. So... The two ones that I have spent a long time on that I did eventually get past and didn't hate, they happen to be actually pretty trivial. <laughs> if you really kind of, if you know what you're doing in the rest of the game. Plus, like, the repetition there is changing the environments and the challenge every single time because it's blunky. Yeah. Did you ever, uh, you guys beat FTL's final boss? No, well, no, I don't think I did. I and I really didn't like it. It really, that felt like changing what the game is to a dramatic extent. And so if I had a good build that was serving well throughout the rest of the game, um, I felt like I sort of deserved to win the game. And then I hit the boss and it's just like, oh shit, this just requires, no. I just have to have missiles or I just have to have drones or I can't remember what the thing was, but I just felt like there was a certain system I should, I should have specialized in if I was going to win this fight. Mm. And I hadn't. Hmm. Hmm. The other half of Zed's question is other cuphead question. <laughs> Could reviewers maybe self-report how good they are at a genre? So, for example, I can ignore reviews from people who are too good at games. It's a reasonable... Well, it's an interesting point. Like, Yeah, I, I wouldn't trust anyone to self-report their skill. How do you, how do you even evaluate it? <laughs> you could self-report what difficulty you played on, I suppose. Um, mm. But that doesn't mean anything to anyone who hasn't played it. It was interesting to me because... Um, you and I, Chris, uh, love Dishonored, uh, I think, probably equally. Um, and we've talked at length on this very podcast about why we love it. Um, but I play it on easy. Yeah. <laughs> I only ever play on easy. Mm. And I've tried, e- even just normal, like for Death of the Outsider, I thought, I'll try normal this time. And like within half an hour, like, no, never fucking playing it. going straight back to easy. <laughs> See, because I just finished it on, and this is not this is not a brag, it is literally just the opposite approach on, <laughs> on very hard. Right. And... Um, when I finished it, I tweeted something like, because uh, I am still processing it, I'd quite like to do a spoiler cast or something just to kind of talk through its beats rather than... Because I, I would have spoken about it on this episode, but I literally have nothing to say about it that isn't a spoiler. So, um, But I, I tweeted like, I finished it and I like it, which is which are both true things. And I got two responses from people saying like, yeah, but the, the last mission was... I hated it and it was impossible. And, like, I spent two hours over the last mission, but I did ghost it in the end. Like, I did manage to do a completely non-lethal ghost playthrough of the entire game, I think, in the end. And, like, it's just... I think it is just... I mean, we were talking about this, Tom, but it's, like, being more of a Thief fan than a Hitman fan is, like, literally yeah. the divide there. Like, Yeah, like, I come from the Hitman world and you come from the Thief world. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, I said this to you, I don't think we were recording at the time, but... um. Uh, I was never really a thief guy. Like I, I played that game after the fact, and I quite liked it, but I never really, I've never really loved a thief game. Um, uh, uh, I mean, really, I'm a Deus Ex person, but also a Hitman person. And um, for me, it's all about having lots of different options and doing things mm. in in um, and sort of making up my own solution. And being forced into stealth is not that interesting to me. Um, and those are the parts of uh, yeah with. Dishonored on a high difficulty, the stealth stuff is so restrictive, or not restrictive, but um, it's so harsh that you know, 90% of the things I try is just, nope, 
fuck, I saw you <laughs> from nowhere and the game's over and you've got to reload. Whereas on easy, I get to kind of play around and it's like, it's more mm. forgiving. It's like, oh, this guy's about to see you, do something about it. And I do something about it and then I get to roll with it. Yeah, it's probably a conversation for a Dishonored pod, but like, I do think even on hard, Dishonored's AI and combat AI and um, sort of like the way that guards change their behavior around the map is intelligent enough to create a satisfying challenge. Like there's a lot of this is even though obviously the like the lightning bolt kind of symbol above people's heads suggests that being detected and dishonored is a really big deal. There's quite a lot of gradations of um, subtlety there. I think mm. in, in that make that interesting and more interesting on higher because all the higher difficulties do apart from meaning you take more damage is. They make guards more aware of stuff that they should probably be aware of. For me, the reason I play it on that difficulty isn't because of some masochistic challenge thing. It's because it makes it more realistic. And because it's a world that I am invested in, I want it to feel like there are real people occupying it. And on the highest level, the the guards look up sometimes. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Whereas... Can't deal with that. (laughs) <laughs> it's just not how NPCs ever behave. <laughs> exactly. It's unrealistic in the context of video games. <laughs> um, and that, for me, kind of helps me sell it. Because, like, I don't... So, you know, um, I ended up ghosting the final mission, but that's because of the particular way I chose to approach it. Um, also, Semblance is fucking amazing. Semblance allows you to ghost so many situations that you'd never previously be able to ghost. Mm. Like, being able to ghost it while reading every book about The Outsider, um, <laughs> that requires Semblance, as far as I can tell. Um but um, actually, that's not quite ghosting it because you have to choke someone else use semblance. You know what I mean? The kind of non-lethal, yeah. never detected kind of playthrough. Yep. Um, pillow, let's call it. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're not a ghost, but you smother some people like like um, uh, that. Like just sort of an immensely satisfying thing to do when you know that you're up against a kind of real AI-ish mm. that will actually look for you rather than like rather than knowing that it's pretending not to see you. I think that's the thing that bothers me. Is I want uneasy is knowing that the game is pretending that it can't see mm. me. I never had that feeling. Um it does have uh, we talked before about like um the easy mode still does have sort of I don't know exactly if there are any AI features they turn off, but things like if there's a patrol and you take out one of the guards quietly without the other one seeing, uh the other guard will still when he comes back notice the other guard is gone mm. and say, "Hey, what happened and, and look around and stuff so it's not like to me it didn't feel like playing in gimped mode or anything it was just uh, the number one thing was just if someone does see me I want a little bit of warning so I can do something about it otherwise right. it's just reload a save game and that's I find that less immersive than my, my thing is always that difficulty basically with that sort of game especially increases the amount of time it takes me to get somewhere because mm. I just have to think about more stuff and just take more stuff into account which is great but I'm so impatient, especially the first time going through a world. It's like I don't have to do the maximum amount of admin to get to that place. <laughs> I just want to see the stuff. Uh, I still don't put it down too easy because I do enjoy the combat. I do enjoy like being punished for being spotted. And also the combat's quite fun in this one. Yeah, I think um, the actual like damage values are relevant to me because if I get spotted, I just, I just reload. I mm. never play it through. Um, so... Uh, pretty much if any damage ever killed me that would be fine <laughs> that wouldn't affect my play style because if I take damage I just I really it's like that's a key mechanic in every game you've made <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> but I'm, I'm quite happy to slaughter a courtyard full of guards in 
hand-to-hand sword combat. It feels wrong on some level, but if that means I get to see Yeah, actually, bit, every yeah. now and then... Uh, so I still... I generally don't carry on if I take damage, but every now and then if I'm spotted and I happen to pull it off in a stylish way, mm. I had one thing um, where I just, like... Uh, I thought the city was basically clear of guards. I thought I'd kind of taken them all out. Um, and I was going back to uh, the pub in Death of the Outsider, and I kind of sprinted up there, and there's two people talking outside um, the pub, uh, civilians, and I sprinted straight to the front door, and it turns out there's a guard at the front door, and uh, they immediately saw me, and I immediately saw them, and I just hit fire, and that just caused like a you know lethal takedown animation, just kind of slit their throat. And I was just seemingly outside of the vision cones of both the people standing right next to us <laughs> talking to each other. Like they were looking at each other, so perpendicular to what was happening. <laughs> and uh, I had just like sprinted in, vaulted over a wall, run up to this car, just slit their throat, and then just suddenly looked at them like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm going in. I think um, to the question, like I, if I were reviewing Death of the Outsider with this in mind, I don't think I would review from the point of view of players in exactly the way I do. Like, the kind of you know providence of options is the important thing there right like yeah. mm. i mean so on paper i kind of agree that you know it's helpful to know how a reviewer approaches a game and if they approach it like you do and if mm. if they're as familiar with the genre as you do and whether they have fun but i don't know that you necessarily need to disclose that in terms of like a skill level so much as it should come across in the way you write about a game mm. really ideally like and you should either approach it from a kind of holistic view, you try and take in the experiences of lots of different people, or you write about a game with... For example, like, if I read a review of a fighting game by someone who really knows their fighting games, even though, like, I'm a kind of enthusiastic novice to that stuff, um, I can tell what their skill level is. They don't need to disclose it. Like, you, just the successful use of big words is enough, <laughs> is enough to convince me that they know more than I do. Um, I'd, I'd love to read the review whether someone someone wrote something that really sounded like an expert assessment of a fighting game, and then confessed in the last paragraph they know nothing <laughs> at all about fighting games. <laughs> Just mash the buttons. <laughs> exactly, that would be that would be interesting. But you know what I mean? Like, I feel like this is the sort of thing you can get across through the way you choose to express yourself about a game, rather than needing to People literally. People don't read no, Chris. They don't read the words. <laughs> oh yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, I, I think actually all of our discussions today have reinforced the uh the fact that multiple difficulty levels and a wide range of difficulty levels in games is almost always a good thing for, yeah. for mm. players yeah like i would say that now like i am totally like having i was a hard mode or bust guy on every game and now i am basically situational about that mm. like it's uh, one of my favorite sort of developments in game design in the last um sort of five years has been that it's pretty i think now it's basically the default that you can change the difficulty during the game and mm. there was a time when that was absolutely not true it was like 90 percent of games you pick a difficulty at the start and you're just stuck with it and if you're wrong about guessing that you just screwed your whole campaign and you won't know for a while because the start of the game is easier than the rest of the game it's a total so you don't guess know. as well there's, yeah. there's no way you could possibly know it's like, i had this so thing with skill like the on the character section screen for divinity gives you like loads of skill rundowns this is meaningless to me. <laughs> Unless yeah. I've played the game for 10 hours, I'm not going to... No way of knowing what this means. This is meaningful for your second run. Yes. Like, yeah. yeah. So but, that, that was yeah. like a, a design goal for Heat Signature was I want you to choose difficulty every time you take a mission, not when you start the game, but just mm. any time, basically before every level, you say, I want an easy... Uh, like, I just did a medium level. That was too hard. I want an easy one now. 
Um, yeah, heat sick is actually an interesting example for this because I pick heat sick missions not not based on the difficulty, but based on the guard gear. Yeah, because that tells me a lot. Okay, that's an interesting thing because uh, we were speaking in the break actually um, about how heat sick difficulty levels. You were saying, Tom S, about mapping to sort of the amount of time a mission will take. Mm. I think I started approaching it slightly differently in terms of almost like how much stress it will cause. <laughs> because of all of the different um, sort of special gear that guards can have, like shields and armor are the two kind of absolute, like, yep. go, don't go kind of things, really. Like, if you can't deal with them, it's going to be difficult, right? Like, mm. you can do something very clever. Um, shields were amazing though. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, like the situational shields, I forgot what they're called. You'll know. You made the game. Uh, emergency shields. That's the one. Um, <clears throat> they, um, them, and uh, bombs, exploding, explosive guards. I guess. Teleporting guys. Glitch dash. Okay. Um, the th- red ring thermal men. <laughs> Heat sensors. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all of those things. <laughs> Should have called them Red Ring Thermal Men, really. <laughs> Red Ring Thermal Men signature. Um, all of those things. Um, I'll create like a wrinkly challenge rather than just like a brick. Yeah. Wall, right. Um, and, and I think it's good that the game has both of those things. because Yeah. But it feels like shields and armor are specifically like um, gear gateways like yeah you, you whereas the others are like you can work around this like i think i told you this time like the day after the game came out i had a run where it was technically a hard mission but for some reason everybody had uh glitch dash so and they were all armed with wrenches <laughs> <laughs> so the game had obviously decided this was hard but what it meant was whenever i was detected and i had like a silenced rapid fire shotgun <laughs> Whenever I was detected, every guard in the level would just teleport next to me, like, willingly. And I would just unload if, like, <laughs> with the shotgun. And so I just sprinted through the entire level. I think the other reason it was hard is it was, like, 15 seconds until capture. If you right. get It was, like, super, super short timing. But some luck of layout meant that I could just sprint towards the pilot to kill kill the pilot. And, and stop the timer while every guard on the level just sort of willingly teleported next to me <laughs> and then pause and shoot and pause and shoot and run and pause and shoot and then got that's, to the end and did it. That's awesome if you have a short blade as well because a short blade is a um, uh, very short range weapon but you just hold the button down and you just kill everyone who comes <laughs> near you. Uh, it's incredibly fast to recover. Um, and so if they have glitch dash and they're melee... Uh, they glitch dash to you thinking oh an intruder I will get as close as I can because I'm a melee guard and then when they get there you're like I'm better at this than you <laughs> I just have to hold this button down and however many of you come you will all die that's what I mean it's like obviously they, I can understand all the reasons why that was sorted into the hard category by the game in terms of reward and stuff but looking at the upgrades I had that feeling like this is going to be a fun one this is going to be a, <laughs> you know yeah I kind of um, wanted that uh, I wanted you to think about what you have and what they have, basically. You know, the, the difficulty levels that we give you are just a rough guideline. Um, and if you see one that says mistake, you should think, oh, if I have zero equipment, I probably can't do this. But everything in between, uh, anything that is in remotely in your, um, anywhere near the difficulty level you can normally cope with, yeah, you should be looking at the specifics and saying, that was the whole idea, is like, look at what 
specifically you're going to be challenged with and do you have the equipment to get past that the armor and shields thing they are different to the other things uh because it's a bit of a hybrid approach like it started out as i wanted to come up with guard modifiers that would mean you can't do this mission unless you have specialist equipment because that was the personal mission concept was your personal mission will be a thing that like uh like a heist movie where you have the blueprints for the the vault or whatever and you're like okay we just simply cannot do this unless we have a safe cracker and an acrobat and someone who can get past this guard and someone who can get past this retina sensor or whatever and so the idea was like we'll tell you what's on your ship and then you figure out you go out and figure out what things you need to get past it a little bit like invisible ink actually that. yeah so like we got as far as shields and, and armor um and then very quickly realized this is the wrong fit for this game because the whole type of game i'm trying to make is one where you invent your solution if i make one where to get past thing x you need thing y I'm just telling you what the solution is and it's not going to be interesting. It's going to be like just puzzle solving uh, or even worse, just grinding. You just have to go and get the thing that you need to solve this mission. Um, And so that's still somewhat in there with armor and shields. There are things that get past armor and the things that get past shields, but there's also a lot of wiggle room between that and everything else where um, uh, every other type of guard kit is, you know, challenging in some way, but easy in another way and armor and shields uh if they're not too many of them you can kind of muddle through and you can still figure it out and that's kind of why you you need money for your personal mission now because uh getting it by equipment just meant that i was dictating how you solve the mission and that was just defeating the whole point of the game the whole point of the game is you invent your solution so it had to be just money it had to be just like uh i need this to be a thing you work towards and once you have uh we will present a like I say, I think they still do work, armor and shields. It's good to have some kind of hard challenges. I recognize this. I've talked about this in, like, why I love Deus Ex. There are some things in Deus Ex where it's just, I cannot solve this problem without tool X. <laughs> and that's why it was so interesting that I had to solve it with tool Y. <laughs> like, I just didn't have tool X. And so I had to do something crazy to get past this sentry because that nothing I had could do anything about it. I think that's, like, I, I think that's right. Like, the the reason that having those absolute barriers works from a, from like a kind of skill point of view is without them, I think you would end up having this sort of devolution towards like extremely simple solutions to every problem. Mm. Like you'd end up with like, you know, it would probably be slightly different every time, but it would be like, if you have some variant on swapper, a visitor, sidewinder is the sidewinder yeah yeah the slow-mo thing um the answer to every problem becomes do one of those things to get into an advantageous physical position then shoot a gun into the room (laughs) and then you've won and it doesn't really matter what what combination of gun and those upgrades it is there's going to be a million of them that work but they'll functionally amount to roughly the same thing with a few little tweaks where like Sorting somebody who will blow up is not a good idea. And that's about it. But that's about it, genuinely, from a sort of complexity point of view. Yeah. As soon as you have functionally invulnerable guards, unless you've got a plan for them, um, that plan doesn't work enough that that's the only way you play the game. So, yeah. I don't know where I'm going with this other than, good job, Tom. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I don't know really know how we got onto this 
from should game journalists divulge how good they are at games? <laughs> I mean, I should if I reviewed a heat sink. Among the many things I have to disclose, one of them would be I've played this before. We should. Um, <laughs> we should. Uh, I know the developer. Um, we should uh, move on to, quickly because it's relevant to to Ben's question, which is: Hello, crates and crowbars. Quick question for Tom F. Do you read reviews for your games, and if so, what is your favorite thing that you've seen written about one of your games? Thanks, Ben. Uh, so a uh, well, actually, in general terms, yes, I have, but this time, no. <laughs> I've not read any reviews of Heat Signature. Um, I've looked at scores, and that's good, uh, and I feel encouraged by that. And I've looked at sales figures, which are very important in terms of my continued survival <laughs> and uh, ability to make more games. Um, and then I'm faced with, like, launch night, you don't really have time to. Like, it's, there's so much going on. Um, and then after launch night, it's like, okay, well, I saw the sales graph and it went up by this much and that's really good and I'm excited about that. And the beautiful thing about sales graph is it only goes up. It never goes down. <laughs> just like the daily sales go down for sure, but like the total number of copies you've sold just keeps going up. It can't really, if enough people refunded it, it probably could go down, but that never in practice happens. Um, and so that's a place I can go to where I'll only ever have good news. <laughs> like, I can have slightly less good news than yesterday, but it will still be good news. Whereas reviews, if I go there, there's a chance someone will, will criticize it in a way that really bothers me. And I just, you know, it's a complete cliche, but, uh, you know, um, anytime you put something out there, if you get 10 compliments and one criticism, the criticism will haunt you for days and the compliments will just fade from your memory immediately. And that's absolutely true for me. Um, and so I'm in this place where, like, because it sold well, uh, I feel great and I'm really happy. And, like, this three and a half years paid off and uh, I feel relieved and uh, um, and fantastic. And I know if I read reviews that had any kind of criticism, <laughs> even if it was mild, I would just be like, oh, God, fuck, I screwed it up. <laughs> and that's obviously not true because people are enjoying it. Like, they, their user review percentage is incredibly high. Um, uh but, you know, any any responsible review will mention criticisms. And uh, I don't want to hear the criticisms right now. I just want to live in the world where it was fine. <laughs> uh, but I do still have some... Because some, I have read pe things people have read about them. Uh, sorry. I have read things people have written about it. Um, <laughs> uh, it's difficult at this stage. Um, this I do have stage. some favorites. Uh, both from games journalists, uh, both from friends of mine, <laughs> um, and both uh, making a similar point. Uh, first was Rich McCormick, um, uh, formerly of PC Gamer, um, yep. uh, who now works for... The Virtual? 17-Bit. Yes, oh, thank good. you. Um, yeah, he's a producer for 17-Bit now. Yeah. I was going to say uh, the Galaxy guys, because I couldn't remember if it was 13-Bit or 17-Bit, because <laughs> odd numbers of bits are a common definitely naming convention. Um, you know, funnily enough, he's uh, he's just sort of doing some stuff for Richard. Just sort of doing some stuff. Sorry, fucking hell! <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it's not just ginger me. <laughs> wine and whiskey, everybody. Um, I'm for RPS. <laughs> oh, cool! Oh, lovely! So, yeah, yeah. He's doing um, like a early access thing. Yeah. Oh no, an updates thing. So what um, you and I, Tom, should do is write something for RPS in the same week of Rich, just so we can have a brief <laughs> moment of the PC gamer circa 2012 <laughs> era. Yeah, um, gang. He was reflecting Science that, having read some heat signature reviews, um, he was reflecting that I had made a game that forced games journalists to write the way I used to write as a games journalist, yeah. which is experiential finally stuff, done that, yeah. recounting experiences and stories, um, which is what I love to do. And 
uh, Phil Savage on the PC Gamer podcast said um, he described it as a Tom Francis simulator, <laughs> which was <laughs> I don't think of my life as being anything like the life that you live in Heat's Englisher, uh, but he explained to say that um, uh, like I'm not that conscious of this, but uh, apparently the way I play games is not how everyone plays the games and sort of self-imposed rules and coming up with like concepts of like, oh, this character will never kill unless this happens um, uh, is not that common. And Phil was saying that he thought Heat Signature was a game that that made you play that way, even if you don't normally play that way. And that wasn't... Uh, I didn't really sort of set out to do that exactly. Um, I just made a game that, you know, I would want to play. Um, but yeah, both those things were, were highlights of the reaction to Heat Signature because um, if I can do anything to make people enjoy the game, enjoy games in the way that I enjoy games, then that's great. And... Yeah, like I say, I, I I sort of assumed everyone else was also playing Deus Ex in ways with like complex self-imposed rules about they can kill people but not directly and only if turrets kill the people. <laughs> um, and I do occasionally hear from people saying, oh yeah, I liked your story, but I, when I play the game, I don't get that at all. Um, and so if, if my game has encouraged those people to play that way, then that's great. I've taken the lore of Heat Signature very seriously, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, th- again, this was uh, kind of serendipity more than intent, but um, the, the sort of very light touch stuff about, oh, this guy's your brother or this guy's your son mm. uh, and your starting equipment, uh, they, they were meant as prompts. We, I did intend for that to sort of cue some things in your head, but I didn't really expect it to work. <laughs> I sort of thought like, oh, players like me will get that, but that's like 10% of people. Um, but in practice, I've heard from loads of people who are like, oh, because I started this equipment, I assume my character was, had this idea and I went out and did yeah, this. Again, we were talking about this in the break. Starting with a wrench means you were an engineer of some kind. <laughs> no other way you'd come into ownership of a wrench. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's nice. And it's a really good uh, testament to how, how light touch storytelling can be. Like, I think, I think there's a tendency to overwrite. Hmm. Say that as a writer. Like, Somebody... Um, so when you get a character captured, there's a, um, uh, there's not even really a chance you just get the next time you, uh, at the character select screen, you get a character who is a relative or friend or a relation of theirs in some way, um, who is trying to rescue them. Um, and it's random what their relationship is. They could be a friend, they could be a partner, they could be a spouse, they could be, um, brother or sister, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. And it's just a, it's a list of, you know, um, relationships in a, uh, a random choice. Um, and somebody uh, managed to... Oh, what did they have? They had a situation where they had already played as that person's dad. And then that person had rescued that character. And then either retired or got themselves killed, then they played as that character again, because if you rescue them, they get to play as them again, and then got themselves captured again. And then they got, like, another dad? <laughs> or it was, no, it was another person who said that it was their kid, and they were like, oh, how can they have two dads? And I was like, well, maybe one of them's their mother. <laughs> Did you think about that? Uh, and we intentionally leave gender very ambiguous in Heat Signature, um, and also just relationships very ambiguous in, ge- in general. And some people have pointed out, well, someone like had a situation where like two different parents had rescued the same person, and they're like, "Oh, if I get captured again, do I get a third parent?" Um, and knowing how the algorithms work, I thought secretly 
yes, you probably will. <laughs> <laughs> and then narratively thought, yes, and what's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> My uh, first character was captured and then rescued by the second character who I kind of decide, I think, I think was a, her girlfriend. Um, and then that is a kind of amazing because my first character I picked because she had like a long sword and a gun, which were like the two things <laughs> I wanted. Excellent. And then the second character who I picked because she could rescue the first character, I had a long sword and a short sword. <laughs> that suggested to me how they met. <laughs> <laughs> Clashing long swords. <laughs> oh, just so, it's long sword club, right? <laughs> they have they, they get both go to long sword club. There's a disagreement about guns versus sword sword. <laughs> But that initial disagreement turns into a, a relationship that's able to spur a galaxy-spanning rescue quest, uh, which was ultimately successful, um, even though she ended up succeeding thanks to the help of an extremely good shotgun. <laughs> She's coming to see the virtues of other methods now. Yeah, indeed. And we have a question from Michael, who writes... With the recent release of Cuphead, Fruity Semicolon, are there any other time periods in history that you want immortalized in shmup form? Or as he writes it, shump former. <laughs> Which I assume is a typo. <laughs> hmm. I mean, uh, Cuphead isn't set in a period of history. Is <laughs> the yeah. slight problem with the, uh, the cartoon period of history. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, everyone's heads are made of cups you know like, everyone we, bobbed up and down in time we've all we've all we all went <laughs> to school we all watched two frame roger rabbit to learn about how this all panned out um i do remember I, I think being period of art or creative history is probably the the yeah the charitable i, I would reading there i would play a shmup that was um depicted in egyptian hieroglyphics <laughs> that's a good idea <laughs> like a very constrained horizontal plane oh, so there's, there's a game there's a kind of two-dimensional combat RPG based on urn art. Yeah. <laughs> Aztez. Uh, no. Aztez no. also exists. It's... Oh, but I think that's not... It's the, not this oh, one. Oh, no, Tom. Someone almost said it. Apotheon. <laughs> uh, yeah, apo- Apotheon. Apotheon. <laughs> What's Aztez? What have I said? Aztez is um, a black and white uh, fighting game that is based on it is based on like sort of Central American art, I think. Um, I guess probably Aztec influences. Hmm. Um, but it were it's made by someone who's an expert in fighting games and like sort of hyper competitive uh, like Street Fighter um, type things. Whose name escapes me right now. Um, but the surprising thing about it is it came out quite recently. I think it's been in development for very many, many years. And the thing that surprised me is it hasn't like a strategy game meta layer what? where you are trying to like conquer certain cities and things. And then like the, the maybe the audaciousness of what you're trying to do on the strategy map maps to how difficult the beat em up game you're playing is when you go into the thing. But it's all about um, uh, for it's kind of like to give you an idea of what it focuses on it's all about um selling the impact of like giant sweeping sword attacks on like seven different dudes and knocking them up into the air and then hitting them 17 times before they fall back down because nice, uh, every time you hit them it suspends you in the air and also keeps them in the air mm-hmm. and all that stuff huh. i think it's black and white except for the blood and the blood is red <laughs> i'd love to play a mobius game against based entirely on the art of mobius that'd be nice Mm. I was in um, 
being in Italy, in Milan specifically, mm. um, I was, and being in Milan specifically on the day that a, Cavara- yeah, a Caravaggio exhibit opens, I was mm. surrounded by, I didn't make it into the Caravaggio exhibit because it was a really long queue, which is always nice to see, but nonetheless. <laughs> but like, uh, Milan Cathedral's beautiful kind of gothic edifice, like literally just encrusted with saints, like just covered in saints. <laughs> <laughs> just fucking lousy with saints. I can't get them off. It was, me. Uh, it just up, up, up to your eyeballs. <laughs> just like saints, shitty saints coming out of the earth, <laughs> swarming tourists. Yeah. Um. Just the beneficent. The, the fuck. I can't say the word beneficence while be this drunk. Like <laughs> the beneficence below. Just like you, <laughs> they just burst out of the ground like, ah, and and then distract your cannoneers. Um. But nonetheless, that I think. Um, made me just sort of rekindle my enthusiasm for really baroque. Go- oh shit! Not my microphone. Catholic <laughs> kind of gothic art, you know, and that kind mm. of thing. That would be a fun environment to set a show up in. Bayonetta gets some of the way there, mm-hmm. but Bayonetta is also a kind of like day glow hyper camp kind of magic adventure at the mm. same time, which is obviously wonderful because one of my favorite games. But it's not the kind of brooding kind of. Caravaggio-esque kind of all heavy shadow and kind of um, sad John the Baptists that I would want from this shmup in my mind. I would have played a, a side-scrolling shooter set in a John Constable painting where <laughs> it's all just fucking blurry and weird. It's just, it's just, it's just a, a couple of people dragging I'll your boat what. up a canal. As as somebody, <laughs> shooting a as somebody who armor. spent my teenage years drinking quite a lot of cider in Salisbury, Right. A very blurry side scrolling John <laughs> Constable painting is basically what that was. It's worth remembering like um there's a video game of Dante's Inferno. <laughs> oh crap. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just they just went Maybe ahead I don't that. want that thing I just said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I don't want it at a cautionary all. tale, perhaps. What's it called, Dante's Inferno? Dante's Inferno. Yeah. Yeah, it was called Dante's Inferno. Love that. Visceral there's... games. Brilliant. Um, uh, there's a really smorgasbord games. <laughs> uh, a wonderful. Oh God, I hope I get his name right. Um, Italian artist, comic book artist. I love called. Um, I think it's Francesco Toppi. It's definitely mm. Toppi. Um, but his his style is astonishing and deserves to be ripped off uh, in game form. I think. Hmm. That's a good point. Actually, yeah, if we're talking about comic book artists, if we're talking about art styles, mm. I would like someone to make a Mike Mignola um, with Mike Mignola. <laughs> Hellboy. Oh, okay. Yeah. That'd be good. Yeah. I have no deeper thoughts on that. I <laughs> Our final question comes from An Angry Barnacle, who writes, if you could wipe your memories of select games in order to experience them anew, which games would you want to see for the first time again? Do you erase long-time favourites or keep the memories you already have as an older game likely hasn't held up very well? My first picks would probably be Hyperlight Drifter, Dishonored 2, and Alien Isolation. Uh, my first thought was Half-Life 2. Um, I don't know. I don't feel like it would age too badly. I don't think there's a lot of stuff that it does. I don't know, actually. My, my enjoyment of it was... Uh, a big part of that was the fidelity. Like, it was unprecedented at the time. It was like, holy shit, this is a a real place. <laughs> I've never seen a place like this before. And, you know, like, Doom 3 existed and Far Cry existed. Um, 
Far Cry was was beautiful, uh, but it was very exotic and kind of wild location. Um, Doom Three was just you know space corridors um, and like really well rendered space corridors. But then Half Life Two just felt like its choice of place was was more convincing. It was just like mm. more real world, and so the fact that it also rendered it uh, beautifully and um, uh, and had so much like physics going on more so than either of those other two games. Um, made it more real and that was a lot of what contributed to my amazement at it so i guess like if they if it's literally i only erase my memory of that and then i re-experience it maybe that wouldn't be so great because i would remember all the other things that have come since and mm. physics would no longer blow my mind and all that stuff yeah the question makes a good point about you know uh the thing existing in its context and that being the magic <clears throat> especially if it's formative so like i could play final fantasy 7 again but I'm not 12, so it would not be anywhere near as fun. Uh, and I'd, I wouldn't forgive it for its many problems in a way that I would now. So my um, my thought for this is I would erase Bastion. Mm. Oh, yeah. And the reason for that is because I think its art style actually holds up because it's a 2D art style. That yeah, beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's it would look as good today as it did when it came out. Yeah. But also, it really surprised me when it came out, and I think it probably has retained that capacity of surprise, which I think yeah. is what we're talking about, right? Like, I wouldn't erase my memories of Half-Life 2 because my memory of Half-Life 2 is of literally, like, playing the game for 20 minutes and then closing it down and then starting it again and rushing to get my dad and my sister so that I could show them <laughs> because it was so mind-blowing. Mm. Yeah. And that is an experience you can probably only have once and can only have when you're 12, mm. right? <laughs> like that's, you know, I would never want to get rid of that. Similarly, any other kind of technologically groundbreaking game you can think of. Whereas I think Bastion Springs to mind is an example of a game where the storytelling, the music, the art, the way it all kind of fit together, the notion of this narrator that kind of followed you around, those things would still be novel, I think, today mm. and be just as rewarding to discover. Like the kind of... I love that soundtrack for one thing, but like the level where you just sort of spiral in on a singer is such a kind of wonderful piece of design and kind of discovery in the sense of um, mm. like you're part of this kind of unfolding story. And that's something you can really only experience for the first time once, obviously, obviously, because I have time works, but <laughs> that's something where I think, it wasn't an epochal shift, but it's an experience that I would meaningfully get the same something again, out of actually. getting the same again. Like, one more of those, please. Yeah. I think um, Alien Isolation is an interesting shout in the question because um, I think it's harking back to a point before you understand the AI algorithm by which the creature is working. And yeah. it actually yeah. refreshes that again. So that's an interesting different take on it where you're not experiencing this linear, linear beautiful, artistic thing, but you're simply unlearning the things that, you know, uh, l learning how that thing works eventually does diffuse its kind of menace and diffuse its, mm. its that's magic. actually um left for dead would be an interesting choice oh yeah oh yeah like the, the first experience of left for dead were just like i can't believe there's a game like this yeah, <laughs> like, just, yeah. this is incredible um uh i guess uh rather selfishly i would love to just play one of my games without knowing anything about it <laughs> which is totally impossible like yeah, most 100 percent impossible mm, thing that must be the, the curse right like you've made <laughs> games for yourself but i mean luckily so gunpoint was um still somewhat fun for me by the end of it because it is a little bit open-ended there's some flexibility you can do um 
and then heat signature is much more so like I, I still enjoy playing heat signature now which is not at all true <laughs> at the end of gunpoint <laughs> at the end of gunpoint like I never want to play this fucking thing ever again <laughs> burn it in a fire please uh, <laughs> don't do that guys don't do that <laughs> Uh, whereas he thinks it, it's because it's so randomized and so um, uh, generative it's the whole point of it was trying to make a game that I could continue to play um, and I don't know how people can make like completely uh, defined linear narrative things by the end of it I mean I, you know I guess I've heard them say this they just hate it at the end of it <laughs> there's no secret it's not like there's some trick you can do to to still love the thing at the end of it they just hate it at the end of it because it's a finite thing and you worked on it for three years or whatever and now you hate it whereas um you know that it got me down a little bit with gunpoint like i you know there was a lot of it i didn't like um a lot of it was just totally dead to me you know solving the puzzles was dead to me because i've done it a million times um and heating there's no trace of that. There's no nothing in it that I've done a million times. Um and that's such a like a more positive experience and yeah, I would like to do that more. Um but yeah, I still don't know what it would be like. I probably or may even be a negative thing because <laughs> to some extent if you make a like a a, a sufficiently randomized game, then the good stuff if you do your job perfectly the good stuff would be the thing that is different every time, so you're still getting that fun. And then the bad stuff would be learning how to play the game. Um, and that's the thing that we, if you reset your memories, you would struggle with. Mm. And so I wouldn't be surprised if you reset my memories and I played Heat I'd be like, oh, fucking hell, this is annoying. <laughs> Why does it work like this? Who, what idiot designed this? Why can you teleport things from anywhere on a ship? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I, I love um, discovering geography in games, like actually you know getting the hit of a new area and mm. slowly unpacking it yeah so any uh, like skyrim i'd love to yeah do i was about to scratch as soon as you started saying that i thought yeah. hang on i would erase skyrim i would erase skyrim because that's a, a game that quickly well not quickly breaks but it breaks like the, the kind of framework of it breaks but i remember that really vividly it's like skyrim came out the it came out the month i started at pc gamer mm. i just hit the cable <laughs> that connects the microphones to the thing can you still hear us? I the 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 waveform is moving, right. yeah. so we're going with yes. Yay! Wow, <laughs> it's one of those podcasts. So the it's going to come out the month I started a PC gamer, and I sank so deep into it. Like that was when I was like sleeping on your couch, Tom S. Oh yeah, during the week, and then going back to my parents' house on weekends, and. I and then I was just playing Skyrim and it was this kind of amazing unfolding environment full of crazy adventures that like you wrote that review that month Tom mm. F it's annoying that you were <laughs> and having a conversation like this but like um and you know it was like such a kind of it felt boundless right and then years on that game has been so reliably kind of mined out and my, and and sort of modded and and refurbished and changed and altered that it feels so limited now like i can't go back yeah. to skyrim and ever kind of reclaim the same experience of it because you see its boundaries now yeah That's like trouble. i know its limitations i know how its engine works i know like i had a 120 hour adventure in that game and it's absolutely irrecoverable mm. because I, even if i start a new character i feel like i'm back at the start of a journey i know the steps of and yeah. the rules are very well definitely so maybe that's a, that's a really good choice actually i would happily erase skyrim from my mind yeah <laughs> I, I was thinking uh, about it like 
I'm just about two thirds into Zelda now, and I would erase that game from my mind right now, like, right now. <laughs> What's Breath of the Wild? Breath of the Wild, and just play it again from the start with the one iota of knowledge that the the initial plateau is not the, what the game is. Really. Yeah. Um, like uh, with that one bit of knowledge, I'd love to rediscover everything I've discovered and all the all the little adventures I've had. Just the tiny little yeah. Like, is it because people, that game is secretly fucking phenomenal? Yeah, but uh, I, I think that once I like I'm, I don't want to. It's like a great book, so I don't want to finish it. I don't want to finish it because that means it's it's not going to be happening anymore, and <laughs> this isn't going to happen for another like five years. There isn't going to be another one of this sort of caliber game for a long time. You know? Yeah, it's weird. The the thing about like erasing your original memories of it, I mean, my initial answer was Half-Life 2, but it, like realistically, no, I wouldn't say that because my my memories of that are that it was just perfect. It yeah. was uh, one of the most uh, exciting moments of my life. <laughs> it sounds crazy, but like, I, uh, there's been no game since then that I've been that excited about. Yeah, um, I pretty agree. And that. it lived up to mm. everything. It was there was no sense of disappointment. It was a hundred percent what I wanted. Um, and yeah there have been many games since where i've been really sure it's gonna be great and it has been great but there's hasn't been that like like kid on christmas eve feeling <laughs> i wonder if that's why half-life 3 meant so much to so many people as a concept yeah, try and recap yeah we don't because the jump from because half-life 1 was amazing like mm. let's not forget that like half-life 1 was an amazing experience yeah and then half-life 2 was an equivalently amazing experience on top of half-life 1 it's very rare that a game does that yeah and it feels to me it feels like there's an age where technological jumps forwards were were uh joined by creative leaps forwards as well and when you got those two at once that was what created that oh my god i've just never experienced anything like this Hmm. you know half-life 2 was um a mixture of uh just the fidelity of the world plus the fidelity of the characters in particular like the sort of digital acting was way beyond anything we've ever seen uh, but then also there was some interaction stuff that we've never seen before, like mm. physics. That was just like, uh, and so it was like all of the flash and pizzazz of a, of a big new fidelity leap forward, but also the gameplay stuff. There was enough new there to convince us that this was like, oh my God, I can do things in this game I can never do before. And we don't really have that these days because like physics is solved. <laughs> that exists already. Uh, you can go with the clever new mechanic. Like you make an FPS that looks as good as Half-Life and when you press the right mouse button, something crazy happens that's never happened ever before to do with time or gravity or whatever. It's usually time but it'll or never gravity. Re- yeah, it's usually time or gravity, <laughs> <laughs> particularly in, in indie games. Uh, but it'll never really be like that because this was like all of the world had not existed in this way before there was yeah. just things didn't have physics on them before now they do and physics mm. is just a thing everything does it now um and the you know uh, i think the way valve see it is that the vr is the next leap forward like that and that mm. uh, and it's true if you have a you it's know a good vr experience versus a a good screen experience is that kind of leap forward it is like oh my god i'm in mm. this place in a way in a to a degree yeah. that i've never experienced I mean, if before. you measured games by like things i've shown my mum <laughs> it would go like half-life 2 and then a 10-year gap and then vr mm. i say yeah. a 10-year gap i mean an 18-year gap apparently <laughs> so you can see why they're excited about it um i still it, think like the substantial almost like i don't know software gameplay gap is still ai for me like mm, um, that's, that's the one, one of the things that really excites me about zelda you know the ai is very basic it's 
like far beyond for the most basic enemies far beyond what will happen to you what think they will attempt to do in any other mm. game i've played for ages just like the the basic goblin things which are called moblins um the they get smarter as you go through the world they're different colors like they get they get stronger they get better weapons but they also just learn new tricks so they throw bombs back at you they start doing they start kicking bombs away from the group like they start doing things that you know makes complete sense and when you see them do it for the first time it feels like a revelation it was like yeah, yeah. holy crap they've just they've defended themselves with a basic level of intelligence <laughs> that i've not experienced in the game before really um yeah, especially in, in an open world context in just an open random part of the world where they're, they're navigating terrain uh, or you know organically and they're defeating threats like that using the physics systems by kicking stuff away from themselves like the, that's so basic you would think just to describe it in that way but I can't think of any other game no. that does it. Like, I feel like we're struggling a little bit towards the fact that I would love to do a dedicated Zelda cast at this point, mm. but I feel like we might be better off just burying it in a dozen episodes of the Kraken Crowbar where we bring up Zelda as an example For five of how, minutes at a time. how to fix PC games, basically, because, mm. like, holy... Yeah, it's crazy. Like, that stuff, like, the fact that if you... That they will dynamically find weapons, like that they will go and look for yeah. weapons on the environment based on what's been dropped. Like, and they can use each other's weapons. There's no like there there are a few size restrictions. Like a, a little guy's not going to lift up a massive weapon, but they like there's no kind of yeah. There's nothing kind of really binary about what a thing can or can't pick up outside of that. Like you know, a, a skeleton could pick up another skeleton's arm and try and hit you with it. Like <laughs> it's that level of stuff. It's, it's, yeah. it's like it's, imagine how revelatory it'd be in your game of Diablo. Hmm. If you wiped out a big room full of monsters and all the loot fell, and then one of the little surviving goblins picked up the amazing sword that the boss had just dropped and <laughs> ran at you with it, mm. like that would feel like some kind of crazy, amazing evolution on what that genre was about. But it's not outside the scope of current technology. And, it's and not. It hasn't been for it, a decade, I'm sure. I know. Honestly. But nonetheless, Zelda apparently was the game that would eventually get that right. Mm. So, yeah. I don't know how we ended up on that from. Um, games you would erase from your memory but yeah that yeah that was a good question that's a good question man but that is all of the questions we've got time for this monday evening if you would like to send us a question for a future episode you can do so by emailing us at questions at crate and you can also tweet us at crate and crowbar crate and crowbar is very very kindly supported by our patreon backers if you'd like to find out more about supporting the podcast and its side projects, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. You can also check in with us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar, where you'll find the Bloodborne playthrough and YouTube versions of all of our pods and that kind of thing. If you'd like to hang out with our community, you can do so on Discord. The best place to do that is on Discord, <laughs> which you would access. Anyone's going to fuck something up. Um, you can access via the website. If you look on the top bar, there's a link to Discord. There'll also be a link in the show notes to this very episode. It's a rad community full of amazing people and lots of good channels to talk about everything from TV to games to tabletop games to miniatures to... To heat signature. To heat signature. There's, there's a, a dedicated channel for Tom's Game. Literally called Tom's Game. It's called Tom's Game. <laughs> Go there to talk about Tom's Game. Uh, that is all of the plugs and things. Uh, uh, if you'd like to follow us individually on Twitter, I'm at C Thurston that's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N Tom F is Pentadact <laughs> at P-E-N-T-A-D-A-C-T S <laughs> uh, Tom Senior at PCG Ludo which is L-U-D-O thanks, thanks for listening everybody